You can kick your fancy ales, you can take them by the flagon, but the only food for the raven too comes from the green dragon. Welcome to episode 17 of the Green Dragon Podcast. Jeremy here, and once again, I've got a long episode with quite a few different segments. Hopefully something you'll enjoy. Today, we're going to have my month in Middle Earth again, where I talk about a variety of topics, especially including what I've done for the month. Then, David comes on to join me for some lore about orcs in Middle Earth. So, orcs in the Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and Tolkien's world. Then, I have a solo segment called Certainty of Death, Small Chance of Success which is not as exciting as it sounds. It's basically maths. So I'm talking about the chance of winning a fight. So once again, I'll bookmark all the pages. If you want to fast forward through that, go ahead. If you want to listen to it, that's okay as well. Then David rejoins me for a shadow in the past about the original Fellowship rulebook. So we really go into the past here and talk about what got us into the game, that first book. Then a solo Making Middle Earth, where I talk about ideas that I've recently found on forums in our Facebook page and, and the Australian Facebook page and every other Facebook page from Jacek from Poland. And then David and I answer questions in the Entmoot. So we have some really good questions today, actually. I quite enjoyed those questions. And finally, we have the first ever solo quick thoughts. So I'll be debating against myself about sharing uh, sharing our models, sharing our progress, sharing our, our ideas with the community. Before we go into Month in Middle-Earth, just a reminder that we currently have the AMIA Scenario Competition running. We have some entries for it, so very excited about that. But they are due on the 20th of September. 20th of September. So probably before the next big episode comes out, this might be your last warning. Of course, I'll put up some Facebook posts, but please get in your scenarios. Remember, the rule was it has to have AMIA. That's it. Win an AMIA Night of the Palmer on Foot, sculpted by me, and away you go. That one, we'll announce the results probably a month after that, that due date. So it'll be not the next major episode, not episode 18, but episode 19 of the podcast will announce the winners because I really want to get the team to have a go at all the scenarios and really put some effort into those. And just to spoil, that episode will probably feature some some reviews of the, ep- the scenarios as well, although we might get a smattering of scenario spotlights around that area as well. So I'm looking forward to that. Get your entries in for the AMU competition. And that's this episode. Without any more ado, let's go into Month in Middle-Earth. It's time for my month in Middle Earth. Once again, this is the segment where I, Jeremy, talk about what I've been doing. Eventually, I'll get some other people on this as well. But it's been really hard to schedule recordings of late because I've my month's been production. Uh, as some of you know, I'm a music drama and maths teacher at secondary school. So one of the things that I do is basically run the music for the production. So we've been very busy lately. We've been doing shows. We did nine shows of Aida. Had a great time. Uh, I played keyboard in the end. I've been training up another maths teacher to be a conductor, so that's been going well. And I arranged it because I've got a lot of juniors, so sevens to tens do it playing the music. So that's been my main time. So I haven't got as much as I would normally get done in a month, but 
after doing the final countout, it's been been pretty good. But what it means is my recording's been very limited and my episodes have been very limited. So you've probably noticed in the last month there's been a lot of non-Jeremy episodes because I've been been busy for those episodes and not be able to get on there. So what have I been painting? I've been painting orcs. A lot of orcs. My orcs, the last time I painted orcs, other than the new Hobbit models, was probably about, I don't know, six, seven years ago. It's been quite a while since I've painted some orcs, and my orc models were getting dated, and I wasn't really that impressed with them, and I was always a little bit unsure of whether I should play them or not, and I often played scenarios without them. So I thought it's about time I get onto and paint another batch of them, and I really want to work towards the the last Alliance scenarios, the really big ones, the 240 orc scenarios just for a spectacle as much as anything. And later in the episode, we'll talk about that inspiration. But I've been painting orcs. So I've got 30 basic troopers. So 13 with shield, five with two-headed weapon, six with bow, six with spear, and then a banner and a captain as well. So my orc force is starting to grow a little bit. Most of these are the old metal ones. So I actually made sure I po- painted every single pose of the old metal orcs. I've got I've got heaps of them. I've been collecting them for a long time. And I jokingly once said on the forum, someone said, what's your dream scenario? And I said, doing the, the 240 orc scenario with all metal orcs. And at that point, I had probably about 100 metal orcs in total. And, and I said it was a joke that it possibly achieved. And then I got lots of people offering me to sell me some orcs. And, and I've built up my collection since then. So I've got a lot of them. In reality, I'm probably not going to do it all with Metal Orcs now. I've been actually more focused on the idea of having every model unique. So having every one of the Orcs different, I think that would be more impressive than having them all metal because having the same pose will still look boring, even though I really love the Metal Orcs. So I painted, I've been trying to paint different poses. So every one of these models that I've got so far is a different pose. So I painted one of each of the original 12 plastics, uh, one of each of the metals, and then I've got the banner and the captain as well. I don't think there's any conversions at this point done. I'll just have a quick look over. No, there's not. So these are all stock models. But I have also been converting. So I've been converting orcs. I've converted eight metal orcs into new poses as well. So I've been using a sword of that sorted stuff. A lot of them are just head swaps, and it's super easy to do. Some of them have been weapon swaps. I bought a lot of weapons from Thunderbolt Mountain, which I really love. They're 28 mil, sorry, 30 mil and 25, 28, I'm not sure weapon packs they've got some great weapons that work perfectly for orcs humans anything they're such a good scale so i've been changing up the weapons and i also did some press molding and green stuff made some new heads so the heads have been mixed around and i've got lots of ideas from for later in the episode we'll talk about our conversion ideas so i can't wait to make my 240 metal orcs it'll probably take me at least till part way through next year to do that but it's going to be worthwhile and i don't think i'm going to do it exclusively i'll do other stuff as well and I already have. I've painted, now this is, I'm really excited about this one. I painted a fat medieval Bismarck from a new company called Unreleased Miniatures. That all sounds very strange. And I will need to be very careful of how I say this. So there's going to be some lines that you're going to need to read through. This model, and I'll post pictures up this on the Facebook page, is the fat medieval Bismarck. It would be an acceptable proxy for the previously unreleased Forlong on horse. So I think it's a bit of a coincidence the company's called Unreleased Miniatures and they and one of their proxies their models could be proxied for an unreleased miniature. Probably totally coincidence there. I've also got a model that will make an excellent proxy for, for Dane on on foot and on Warbore and that's called the Totally Random Dwarf Lord. So strange name but once again coincidence that it can be proxied for a model from the Hobbit, which is really good. 
I know that Unreleased Miniatures is also looking at making some goblins, some goblin ninja type models that maybe would proxy okay for prowlers with different weapon options. And also some, some pirates, which could possibly be used maybe for Corsair Reavers. Once again, unreleased from miniatures. Coincidence. Anyway, I'm really excited about this because it essentially means that we almost could maybe be having new models by this company. So I'm going to give you a quick review of my my fat medieval Bismarck on horse model because I painted that up so I can honestly talk about it. The other one I've only assembled, the, the random dwarf lord. So I haven't painted that. Firstly... I'm going to get the, the bad stuff out of the way. The material, it's a resin, which is nothing wrong with resin, but the bubbles are, are a bit of a problem. It's it's a very brittle resin, so it will break. The advantage is it's a clean break when it does break, but the disadvantage is that there's actually quite a bit of air bubbles in there, so it makes it prone to breaking. My spear had to be basically rebuilt. The horse, I had to re-sculpt all the hair on the horse, but I, I got the skills to do that, and it's probably somewhere between the current fine cast and what the original fine cast was in terms of what you have to do for repairs so it's not for the for beginners it's a little bit of work but i think the payoff's worthwhile the model itself takes paint really well the sculpt itself is really nice it's probably i would say if i'm being really critical somewhere between the absolute worst models in the lord of the rings range and the and the average lord of the rings range so it's probably just below the good models in the the actual lord of the rings range not not the hobbit range not quite up to that standard yet uh, mainly the the detail is is there but they're really well done sculpts so i'm very happy with them and it's better than i could do in a conversion so overall i'm very excited and every model that adam and unreleased miniatures put out i'm going to get so straight away that's my commitment because i think they're really impressive and i recommend you check that out we'll put a link in the facebook page as well and the, the show notes but unreleased miniatures so how exciting is that new new models that may or may not be used for our game and now my games so we've got a lot of scenarios actually i've played a lot of shorter scenarios and mostly with the same group actually i've been doing a lot of gaming with a bit of cross-pollination a group that that plays basically for from me close to the inner city uh i'm i'm outer eastern suburbs or middle eastern suburbs and these are inner eastern suburbs or northern suburbs i guess and uh, playing a group that their main game was warhammer fantasy but there's been some changes to that game, and some of them are, are looking at new options and opening for new, new options. So this is the time to to get in and start polluting their minds, getting them into to Lord of the Rings. So I've been playing some some games against uh, Nick. We played some Amon Sul, and we we played that at their Wednesday night Warhammer meet. So we play. I brought the Weathertop over. We played on a little table. Uh, the the Weathertop scenario. I can't actually remember the name of it. I think it might be just Amon Sul or Attack at the Weathertop, maybe. From the Fellowship Journey book. I've actually played a bunch of scenarios from the Fellowship Journey book. This is a great scenario. I really love this scenario. It's always good fun. Good results. We also played the one with Gandalf against Rafes. I want to play this some more because the result was a little bit unsatisfying in that Gandalf got beaten every time. So I want to look into that and see if we're doing something silly. Then I had people over at my house. We played the Amon Hen scenario. So Frodo and Aragorn and Leggy across the board. I made the mistake of trying to incorporate new rules into it and really screwed it up. The new ring rules do not work in that scenario. So go go the old rules for that scenario. So that was a bit of a, a anticlimax. I played against two two players who hadn't really played Lord of the Rings much before, so Ben and Hugh. And funnily enough, they're, they've both been to Japan, both lived in Japan, which uh, my wife, who's Japanese, was very excited about. So her idea of war games has very much changed, which is good for me and and 
yeah, on a personal note. But anyway, Nick was there as well. So we basically umpired and they played and the scenario itself looked really good, but didn't play very good. And then we all went to the Oskiliev table and played the Oskiliev scenario from, I believe it's Gondor in Flames. But I'll have to check out that one, and it's it looks fantastic. My Oscillus board looks really good. The models looked really good. I'd started including the new orcs that I painted, so my orcs started to look good. Uh, we ended up playing till almost two a.m. Like it was a long scenario, and we had no idea of the time until my wife basically said, "Are you guys still playing?" Uh, in shock as much as anything, and it was after one a.m. So that was a great game. Evil managed to win that game, picked up most of the the objectives, but that was good fun. There was one key moment where. Evil was doing so well at the start, and then I went for a toilet break and came back, and there were some cheers I heard, and the good had managed to shoot down a troll in one turn of shooting. And now Madril spent a bunch of might to do this, but shooting down a mortal troll is fantastic. So that was a bit of a shock, and it's always suspicious when you go to the toilet and come back and your best model's in the bin. But well, anyway, that was that was good. It was a good result for the game. And then I've continued on playing the Amon Hen a uh, little mini campaign, the three scenarios in the the back of the Fellowship Journey book with Nick. And he managed to play good and win all three of them, which I thought was fantastic because we've had massive troubles with the Boromir scenario trying to get it balanced in the past. And the biggest difference we had this time was uh, we used my, basically my modified Rohan board, which has quite dense forests. And Nick was able to win the first scenario really quickly and then push that advantage in the campaign, which basically gives me less turns in the second game. And he, he got into the forest, and I really just couldn't get him out. I managed to steal, I think it was Pippin, but Mary beat me a couple turns, and I wasn't able to get him off the board, and Boromir stayed alive. So it was fantastic. It was actually pretty close to what the movie was, and to have good win it was, was really good. And then the last scenario, I managed to kill off Boromir, but it took me way too long, and then I couldn't get Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. So the three hunters avenged the death there, and that went exactly as the movie. So the only thing different was that Mary was, was not get captured, so... Yeah, whole butterfly effect going there. But that was a really good scenario. So actually managed to play a bunch of games. No points matches, which I'm not upset at all with. Some good scenarios and very happy with that month in Middle Earth. But thereafter there was peace for many years, and no open assault from Angbrand, for Morgoth perceived now that the orcs unaided were no match for the Noldor, and he sought in his heart for new counsel. Welcome to our Green Dragon main segment, where we are talking about some of our favourite characters in the game, the orcs, the evil minions. I've been very excited about orcs lately, and I've been wanting to know everything about them, so I've got David with me. Greetings. To talk all about his knowledge of the orcs and what I know about them, and together we should be able to cover most things about orcs. We talked about other parts of this episode, about orc projects, making lots and lots of orcs, so I thought we might as well talk about them. And these are models that, to be honest, for the last few years I've been a bit uninspired by. I've taken the Hobbit orcs lately, but the old mortar orcs and some of the others I've really only rediscovered and, and really renewed my love for them. They are classic miniatures, not quite from the first release, but fairly old nonetheless. 
Well, the the metal ones that I've got are from oh, the first yeah. release. Okay. Not not all of us have metal orcs though. So. No, no, you, you're missing out those who don't. I feel sorry for you. But let's go straight into who are the orcs and let's do a bit of a lore segment. So for those who don't know or for those who do know, let's just talk about them anyway. When you're talking orcs, you've got to start with Saruman's quote. They were elves once, taken, ruined, mutilated. In effect, Morgoth, the enemy of all the world, needed a base troop. He needed something that he could churn out in vast numbers to fight the elves with. So he took elves, he twisted them and ruined them, and he built the orc, which was was to be his warrior. Kind of didn't work out so well, but he gave it a good shot. Morgoth was Melkor as well, wasn't he? Is that, he that was, his name was before... called Melkor yeah, I thought so. until he betrayed them, and then it was declared that his name would never again be spoken. Yeah, and... so we've got we've got stories of Melkor making him in the first age and basically like twisting elves, essentially. Mm-hmm. I think Treebeard says to Merry and Pippin that they were made as a copy and imitation of elves as well, which is, mm-hmm. I guess, a little bit different from what we say in the Silmarillion, but mm-hmm. well, Treebeard wasn't around the Silmarillion, was he? I don't think so, so he probably doesn't know totally accurately. It's somewhat vague quite when Treebeard became Treebeard because he was woken up at some stage by the elves, but whether he was conscious before then, and it just gets messy. Yeah, so we've got a little bit of conflicting views, but overall, though, they've been around since the start, basically, Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. So they've they've been your evil for a long time, and, and how good a job have they done at that, David? The first battles between the elves returning from, you know, the far west and the orcs resounded in absolute massacre of orcs. In one instance, the orcs managed to catch them between two armies against the shores of a lake when they were all split up, and it didn't matter. Orcs just generally died in large numbers because it turns out that when elves spend too much time in the Undying Lands, they pick up a sort of inner glow, which most people can't see. Orcs can, and it scares them, and they just run off screaming, which made them really ineffective as warriors. Yeah, and they don't particularly like the light, do they? No. Once again, they were made before the Valar had got round to building the sun and the moon and finalising a few of the, you know, later details. So the moon rose... Upon, from memory, one of their, you know, great defeats. So they kind of don't get along with it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they they don't particularly... They're, they're basically nocturnal. They don't they do not do anything during the day. They, they do all their work at night wherever possible. They burn incredibly rapidly in the sun and they suffer from some fairly chronic heat stroke. So while they can go out in daylight, unlike trolls, they don't function well. And if you can catch them in the daylight, then they're even yeah. easier to fight. So if you ever find the orcs, go catch them in the daylight... That's that's the way to do it. So these these have been the enemy of elves and men, and basically, did we ever know of any big orc commanders or any orcs who have risen to fame or anything like that early on? Do you know of any? There was a couple orcs that got named in the Silmaril and its accompanying works, but none of them really survive long enough to actually become famous in anything other than orc circles. Like, you get Gothmorg in The Return of the King, you get Shagrat, you get Gorbag, but... There's no real giants amongst orcs. Yeah, I know that they're, they're basically generic fodder for the elves early on. Like, I know that they were in the, the Battle of Beleriand, I think, and they were in the some of the other battles in the First Age, and they basically got, got wiped out pretty quickly, and mm-hmm. we needed some reinforcements as evil that, that were a little bit stronger than the orcs, unfortunately, because they, while they did their job, they're not the most effective mm-hmm. fighters in the world. Yeah. The quote that we had at the start of this segment was from where Morgoth, he planned this cunning surprise attack. He marched an army up and round all the way to attack them from the other side. 
and it wasn't even accounted one of the great battles because they didn't the elves didn't have to reposition their main armies they just sent the blokes that were there to go deal with it and he went you know what these orcs aren't doing their job i'm going to build some dragons i'm going to get some trolls i'm going to generally up the ante a little oh just a little yeah up the power level a little bit yeah the orcs tend to be you hear a lot more about them in the Third Age stuff with the Hobbits and, and the the Lord of the Rings. You don't hear a huge amount about them in the First Age. You know they're created, but they're basically beaten down at, at times. And you imagine them just being the foot soldiers, being always around and, and being present mm-hmm. in the battles there. The point when Morgoth makes dragons or he builds trolls is it costs him power. Now, he had plenty of power to spare, but someone like Sauron, he's got less power. He has to use what's available. And what was available during the Third Age was orcs. So they got used whether they were any good or not. And they really started to get a bit generic engineering on the orcs in the Third Age. Um, a lot more than they had beforehand. I know they had tried beforehand, but mm-hmm. like uh, well, changing elves into orcs is one thing. Mm-hmm. But, but they really got into it with Sauron and Sauron mm-hmm. just really breeding and trying to, trying to get ideal races of orcs. In the earlier ages, it just wasn't seen as worthwhile. Like you could spend your time breeding a superior race of orc or you could throw together an extra few dragons, and pretty much all of the evil overlords before Sauron went, you know what, let's just get some more dragons. Hmm. Now, where do we find orcs? Where do orcs like to live? What's their, their natural habitat? Well, they don't like the sun, they don't like the moon, they don't like bright light. So underground is probably where you're going to find them, or somewhere deep canyons, dark woods. Just yeah. Anywhere spooky. There's a lot of mentions of, of orc places underground with, with Moria and Mount Graham and, and some of the mm-hmm. other places that they live. And we often interchange them with the word goblin as well. So in Tolkien's mm-hmm. writing, goblins and orcs are pretty much the same, one and the mm-hmm. same. They yeah. might might differ in appearance maybe slightly, but that's more just from where they're mm-hmm. located rather than the actual yeah. type of it. It came down to the difference between orc and goblin and Urukai, at least before Saruman came along, was purely based on size. Orcs were bigger, Urukai were bigger again, hobgoblins are in there somewhere, we're never actually told what distinction is a hobgoblin. It was only Saruman's Urukai when he actually went out of the way to build his own Urukai. Yep. So if you hear goblins, I know that in the movies and in the the game we've we've really differentiated between goblins being like slower mover and shorty and, and underground guys, but in, in Tolkien's writing, are basically interchangeable. And I know some of the language editions of the books, they basically just use goblins and orcs interchangeably. And mm-hmm. so some of them had the great orc in... What was the, where was that again? That was in The Hobbit. The the Goblin King was it, just the great goblin. Yeah. Except he was in some cases described as an orc, some cases yeah. he wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. So, because he was bigger than the other goblins, so he could be referred to as an orc. Yeah. But the thing about orcs is they're always around. They're like a... Mm-hmm. Like insects, really. There's just a lot of them. They're always there. They're they're a threat just yeah. because they're numbers and they're, yeah. they're they're quite aggressive. But they're not the most threat. And the way you, you imagine the books is that that men and elves can take them on pretty easily. Yes. But there's just so many orcs mm-hmm. that eventually you're going to get worn down and and your sword's mm-hmm. going to get blunted. And yeah, there's only so much orcs you can kill. What generally happens is the orcs are a nuisance for. A, a period of time until they build up their numbers, until the orcs get an army and there's confidence in numbers, so they come marching out as an army, they get defeated and scattered, and then they just go back to being a nuisance until their numbers build up again. So at the end of The Hobbit, Battle of Five Armies, they wiped out all the orcs in the area except for a handful, and there was no orcs for years and years until eventually they built up their numbers in time for the War of the Ring. 
So I'm going to go through just some types of orcs, I think, and then we'll get on to how they are in the game. And so this is this is basically for the book stuff, and no particular order. You've got like goblins is mentioned as well. So they were like misty mountain orcs and orcs from from Moria and that sort of thing are, are just called goblins. We talked about just before ones that that came in uh, Goldfimble. We heard about invading the Shire. This is one of the the packs of orcs we heard about more. So they were from the Enton Moors, I guess the orcs. And maybe maybe near Mount Graham. I talked about that before. We've got orcs basically in all parts of a lot of Middle Earth. Uh, Minas Morgul. We've got Golgoldor orcs. We've got Moranon orcs. So Gundabad orcs. Like just basically based on location, you call them names and that. And sometimes they're in the book, but a lot of these were done with the game as well and mm-hmm. and other articles afterwards. There's an orc word for a slave. Do you remember what that is, David? It's in the Return of the King, but can't yeah, bring it to mind. They called them snagger. Okay, yeah. So sounds familiar. It sounds like that there's like like a a worker breed of orcs sort of mm-hmm. thing rather than the fighter breed and yeah. they do a lot of work in the pits mm-hmm. and do all the, the menial tasks of things. That would come down to if you've got Urukai and goblins in the same area, Urukai are bigger, so Yeah. They'll they'll choose the better jobs and the goblins will be left with, you know, digging up ore or I always get picture that the the ones with the whips and things leading a bunch of snaggers and basically being Essentially, the goblin profile for orcs, essentially. That, that's how I imagine those going. And then we've got some of our big ones. We've got our black orcs, which uh, were in Moria, I believe, weren't they? The, or is that something else I'm thinking of? Um, there was orcs in... There's orcs in Mordor. There's yeah. orcs in... There was some in Moria, because yeah. I remember specifically maybe just one mention of them or two. Mm-hmm. There was ones in Mordor, so Urukai, I think they were. Mm-hmm. And then the Isengard had Urukai as well. So there was there's quite a lot of orcs around, and there's some some famous ones from from the books. So some of the famous ones from the books were, of course, Azog and Bolg. Okay. We had Golfimble, who who fought at the Battle of Greenfields. Yep, yeah, and inadvertently invented the game of golf by getting his head knocked off yeah. and down a rabbit hole. So that's I'm, always fun. I'm glad that made it into the movie. Yeah, that was that was I was <laughs> I almost cheered when that happened. We got Gorbag, who was the orc um, at Minas Morgul, I think it was. Uh, yes. Yep. Oh. We have in the tower that, above, but yeah, yeah, and we had Shagrad as well. So they were in the chapter from the Turn of the King. Those two, mm-hmm. we had. Do you remember Grishnak as well? He was the one that, that yeah, sent across the river to liaise with the Urukai. Yeah, and it took them on. This is one that that I'm not so sure about. Gothmog, orc or not? Gothmog. There was the orc in the. Battle of the Palinor Fields called Gothmog, and then there was the Balrog at the Fall of Gondolin called Gothmog. Oh, yeah, Gothmog. no, no, I'm not, not debating the Balrog at all. <laughs> but Gothmog, I don't think it's ever mentioned in the books whether he was an orc or not. You have a point. I'd have to look that yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that it's not mentioned. No, actually, I'm fairly sure it says it was no orc, li- orc brigand that was leading the assault, oh, which okay, would imply so... he definitely wasn't an orc. Yeah, but... yeah, or maybe he just wasn't a brigand. But yeah. um, but that's something to to have a think about and look up because I always imagine it being like a black Numenorean or um, yeah. like a, a ringwraith type creature or something like that that's leading it rather than than an orc. Because we get to see that Sauron doesn't trust his orcs. There's the mouth of Sauron is in charge at the Black Gate. He's not an orc. Where he trusts his ringwraiths with all the important missions, he doesn't put orcs in command. So. Having the Witch King and his second-in-command being an orc when there were other ring race there doesn't doesn't really fit with what we know about, you know, the Dark Tower's command structure. Yeah. And I've got one more orc that I want to mention that was from the books, and I, I, we, we just released a Shelob episode, and this, this orc I only remember because 
it was in uh, the Lord of the Rings collectible card game that I've played from Fantasy Flight Games, and they had an orc enemy called Chieftain Uftak. And this is the one... Is he the guy who got eaten by Shelob? He got eaten by Shelob. I right. don't think he was a chieftain. He just got lost in the tunnel, eaten by Shelob. And they made him a chieftain in the game and like a real <laughs> tough enemy. And I remember that thinking, I've read that name before and I looked it up and I don't remember all the other ones, but I do remember that one as being quite a promotion actually for the game. And then he just, just randomly got lost and eaten by Shelob. I think it's the case of, it's like Rohan heroes. If they've got a name, they'll make a hero for it. Yeah. Yeah, and then Peter Jackson's invented a lot of other ones afterwards, and we've got them in the game. So, I think that's a bit about the background of Orcs. Now, I guess we'll go for profiles. Do you want to, or do you have another bit of story? We can't really discuss the effectiveness of Orcs without looking at one tale from the um, from the Book of Lost Tales. Ooh, Lost you've Tales. Got, you've got an elf and a man. They've been shipwrecked. They've Well, the elf's been shipwrecked. They're marching through deep snow. They're, they're out of provisions. They're out of resources. They're, at, they're on their very last legs, and they come across the highway. The highway is guarded by orcs, because Morgoth is afraid of the black sword coming through, and he figures that if he doesn't hear from these orcs, he knows the black sword has been through. Oh, you talking about Turin, are you? He's set a guard against Turin, but Turin didn't actually make it into this uh, one. He was heading the other way. Uh, they okay, passed him in the night. But anyway, so these two blokes, well, they come wandering up, and they see the fire in the distance. And the man says to the elf... I've got me sword. I'm going to go ch- claim that watch fire. The elf's like, it's guarded by a company of orcs, you know. It's like, yeah, there's not that many. We can take them. Yeah, we can, but, like, it'll raise the alarm. There'll be noise. Some of them are bound to get away. Like, you know, it's only a company, but a few of them will get away. And there's watch fires in each direction. That means we'll have two companies of orcs to deal with. We can take them. Yeah, sure, but what about the other two companies? Eventually, they'll wear us down. And the man still wanted to take the risk because, you know, the fire was bright and cheerful. So it's just the level of respect that they have for yeah. the combat prowess of the orcs. It's only a company. There's two of us. We can take them. Yeah, that, that's right. Like, that's it's not example. even a question about whether or not can we take them. It's how many will get away after we've yeah, taken yeah, yeah. them. Because <laughs> they're all going to be running from two. Well, there's an elf there, so that, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's a good story. Now, I'm going to start going through some of the, the different profiles of goblins and orcs that we have. And I'm going to start with goblins because I think work our way up is the way to go. So just having a look at Moria, and most people know about this, but I think it's good to mention them anyway as we go and, and actually get some strategy battle game talk in. You've got your basic goblin troops, and this has been around since the start, the Moria Goblin Warriors, and they're they're absolute classic and they're very effective warriors. And they've got some options as well. They can have a drum, and that's straight from the book as well, the drums in the deep. So mm-hmm. very representative of Moria. And they've since released some other models there. So in terms of just the troops... You've got Warg Marauders, so these Moria Goblins are riding a Warg. So big cavalry model, pretty nasty. You've got Goblin Prowlers, which are a nice idea. They're basically little ninja goblins as much as anything. They've got these two-handed weapons and some options and some differentials there. And then you've also got a type called the Gundabad Black Shields, which were mentioned in the books they were, weren't they? Or Orcs from Mount Gundabad? Uh, Mount Gundabad... Being to the north of, uh, sort of up into the side, yeah, of what's it called, Mirkwood. So it's orc infested area. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember Gundabad's being mentioned somewhere in the book Gundabad Black Shields. I it, it might have been a throwaway line. It might have been Gandalf when they're going, "Can we walk around Mirkwood?" And he's like, "Yes, it's a long way, but you've got to go past Gundabad. You got to go past the Grey Mountains. You got to go past the Necromancer. Just don't bother." <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, you could be right. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure where that was, but I'm I'm sure that's been mentioned before because that was I think their first release for the game in mm-hmm. War of the Ring. They came out yeah. with them and then put them in the books afterwards. And then you've got Goblin characters. So a whole bunch of Games Workshop invented ones. Uh, so Durbers, the Goblin King of Moria. He compared Durbers to the Goblin King of uh, the Misty Mountains, and oh, there's a big difference there. Then you've got Druzag, a Beast Caller, so one that can summon beasts or enrage them in this case. You've got Groblog, so another Goblin King that they've invented. And then you've got things like Goblin Captains and Goblin Shamans and Gundabad Black Shield Captains and Gundabad Black Shield Shamans and Ashrak, so a little spider goblin as well. So they've named some of them to give you some variety there, but they're all pretty well invented by Games Workshop. Then we move on, we've got more goblins. More goblins. goblins. Do you want to take these ones, David? They're the ones from The Hobbit. So in The Hobbit, we have the Goblin King, which... As opposed to the Goblin King of Moria, this is the Goblin King of Goblin Town. And there's only one of them, so he is, he's the great goblin they talked about. That mm-hmm. Okay, we move on through Grinner and the Goblin Scribe to the Goblin Captain, still yeah. Goblin Town. Yeah, and the Grinner and the, the Goblin Scribe were invented by, by Peter Jackson. Okay, uh, through your Goblin Warriors, which, well, once again, more from Goblin Town. Do we want to go on to Hunter Orcs? No, 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 no. Hunt, save the Hunter Orcs for later. So the goblins, you've got very limited options in terms of the Misty Mountain goblins. And these ones, the way they're portrayed in the movies and is as being quite deformed, quite probably inbred and, and not particularly healthy, all led by a, a very fat, great goblin. So these ones are, are a bit different. They don't wear armor. I think if you remember the third movie, they actually had them with the armor on later on. So I'm yes. hoping at some point in the future we get that. Mm-hmm. The Goblin Mercenaries. Yeah, that would be really fun. It might be a way to, to give some of them armor, sculpt some on. So hopefully the good sculptors out there will, will help us out with that. But that could be fun there. I'm going to move away from that. I'm going to go for the profiles from Angmar, first of all, and then I'm going to move on to Mordor. Because uh, we've got the Angmar list, which is mostly ghosts and specters and trolls and things like that. Um, some mm-hmm. of these orcs might be Entenmore orcs. They might be the ones we talked about before. But we've got some others there. Now, I'm, I wish Goldfimble was in this list. I don't think he's actually available in any of the current lists anymore. But this is where I'd put him if I was going to put him in one. Mm-hmm. So you've got orc captains there. You've got Angmar orc shamans. You've got warriors of orcs, generic orc warriors of Angmar. And you've got orc trackers. So orc trackers... Uh, basically, in the game, orcs that have less armor and a better ability to shoot, they're, they're models that I'm not sure that they're my favorite, but they tend to turn up in the game quite a lot. I use some from Thunderbolt Mountain, and they've basically got little naked orcs that I really like. Uh, I think they look much better as, as trackers. Mm-hmm. The other ones, it's hard to tell the difference between them and the orcs, except in the, the, the funny poses they are. They're, they're pretty much similar. I know my brother converted up some Goblin Town goblins to make the Orc Trackers. So he gave them bows, which you see in the movie, and counted them as Orc Trackers. Yeah, that's a good way of doing it. That's a good way of putting some... You could even make a Goblin Captain, for example, with some bows and ally some in and, yeah, have some have really good ways to add some bows to the Goblin Town. There's also Warg Riders, so Orcs that wide, ride Wargs. And in the books, basically some of the Wargs will give Orcs permission to ride them. Mm-hmm. So this is a... It sounds like it's not a permanent thing. It's like It's not like this is my wag or anything like that. It's just, no. you go up to wag, mm-hmm. hey, can you give me a lift? And the wag mm-hmm. says, sure, yeah. or it, it eats you. Yeah. In The Hobbit, they'd made an alliance. So the wags would serve as mounts during the battle and they would split the plunder between them. Yeah, yeah. So lots of choices there. And then I'm going to get to, to Mordor, which has got the bulk of them. We're going to talk about the basic orcs first before we talk about anything that's that's grown out of orcs. 
first of all. So the basic orcs from the Mordor supplement and the ones we use for Mordor, we'll go through the heroes first, I think, of all, is the way to do it. Gothmog, we talked about Gothmog before. I've looked it up. When it said it wasn't an orc, it was talking about the Witch King. So we now know the Witch King is not an orc. But it never says what Gothmog is. Yeah, I don't think it says what it is. I think it's a little bit ambiguous. So some people believe it's an orc, and probably Peter Jackson was one of them. Some people believe it's something else. I, I tend to believe it's something else, because at this point in time, I couldn't see an orc being a leader of such vast armies. But they've made Gothmog quite the leader in the game, and he is quite powerful. So he's a step above pretty much most of the other orcs in the game, mm-hmm. barring some we'll get to very shortly. We've got one interesting orc shaman called Kardush, the Firecaller. So an example of... Well, the whole shaman thing is orcs using magic. I can't remember... Was there a quote in the books that said something about all the spells in the tongue of men, elves, and orcs or something like that? That sounds like the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, I think they've taken that quote and turned it into shamans, basically, which honestly is probably a good way to represent it, where they're, they're basically helping their fellows out and whipping them into a frenzy, and they've got a little bit of a weak transfix and things like that, which is... I see that being them doing a bit of a funky dance or something and trying to distract you as much as anything, mm-hmm. doing something silly. But Kardush can, can do fireballs. So he's one of the few orc shamans that has a bit of an attack out there and it's his own sort of version of a sorceress blast, essentially. And it's very different in game, but yes. having a shooty orc shaman, he's a great model to, to put in your games. I it's know. good fun. As a purist of the lore, I don't like him. Like, that's not how magic works in Middle Earth. You don't just get to throw fireballs at somebody. Even Gandalf has to, you know, bring along some pine cones or whatever. Yeah. I remember one particular game that I was playing... Uh, years ago, and we're trying to do a contest of the champions in the old version where it was just the amount of kills. I saw Kylie was doing a, a basically trying to make sure that that she could kill lots of uh, lots of guys with with a big hero. It was a it was a really strong one. And then I drew up the scenario and had Kardush as my leader. And I thought, wait a second, I can do this. I'm going to get as many kills as possible. And basically, I was using his flame spell to kill ones, sacking my own orcs. But I was sacking the orcs that were right near Kylie's champion. So Kylie's champion would get near, get ready to go into combat, and then all the orcs near her would disappear, and I just kept pulling them out. And everyone else in my army shielded. Kardush was the only one who like attacked. Everyone else shielded. I'd sack orcs that couldn't shield, so I'd shoot out the the bowmen or the spearmen or ones that couldn't have a non-lethal attack, and saved every kill for Kardush. And he got so many kills. I think I got up to about 19 kills with Kardush in this one scenario. Oh, he should have got the free might per turn. Or... Oh, it was fantastic. It was just... Because I was flame burst is just fantastic, and killing guys, and then I'll go into combat, and and you put a spearman behind him, and then a couple guys on the side just trap a single model and just literally bounce around onto ones. And this is when he had two attacks, one wound, so it was mm-hmm. fragile as anything. But but two attacks, two attacks, yeah, that was the way to do it. So so that was that was hilarious. That would, but anyway, also there's mortar orc shamans and there's Moranan orcs. So Moranan orc captains, these are. Basically, in the game, they've given them better strength and better armor. So these are your well-trained, mm-hmm. militant orcs. They've, they're one of the first sort of stat creeps for orcs that they had. Back in the days when Siege of Gondor came out, they brought these in as basically orcs that could siege a fortress. And they did a great job of it, and they really posed a threat to Minas Tirith mm-hmm. in particular because they could get through the Defense yeah. 6 armor. So they've been a mainstay of the game for a long time, and they've been very popular for a long time because they are just mm-hmm. so reliable and... I believe the justification was that Moranon is the area closest to the Black Gate, so these are the front line, first line of defense of the 
Dark Tower is the Black Gate and these orcs that are guarding it. Yeah, yeah. So I can see that justification. I I think they came in with the orc. Their their, their sorry, their, their points came in a little bit on the the value side of it. So I think that helped them become very popular because mm-hmm. of what they could do. But they're good models. And then you've got options like Orc Drummer and Orc Taskmaster, which I really love the fact that they've given these as options because they're so key to the book, the drummers and the, the mm-hmm. Taskmasters and having yeah. the whips behind them and basically mm-hmm. giving you some more options as heroes. So you've got some really good options in the model list mm-hmm. and your Orcs suddenly become a very military force with those Cause, options. Because yeah. most Orcs don't choose to march to war. It's the it's the Taskmasters and the drummers. and the... Yeah, and I could see the mm-hmm. Taskmaster with a bunch of snaggers and, yeah. and slaves and things going around. Uh-huh. Then we've got Orc Warriors we've seen before. So Orc Warriors, Orc Trackers, same as the Angmar lists, pretty much. You've got the Moran and Orc profile, and then you've got a Morgul Stalker. So this one, I like the idea of, but I think the execution's a bit funny. Mm-hmm. It's basically a little stealthy Orc. So he's got an Elven Cloak, because of course Orcs can have cloaks. Yes. And he's got a couple attacks, and so he's hard to shoot down. He's quite costly in points for, for equivalent profile, but I find he's so useful. Like In Orcs, he, they always get into combat. And they just give you that extra punch, that strength four that you need with a couple attacks to take down anything the Orcs can't take down. They're really lethal and scary. So they're good in game. I think the models themselves, I don't know. I just, I might have to repaint them at some point and maybe give them some different weapon options and see what I can do with them. Because with three poses, I think there's just something missing. But I might be able to change them up. Maybe even give them a helmet or something. It could be really cool. Maybe Maybe no face on them. Have them as a... Have some sort of mask, yeah. Yeah, almost dressing like a ring race, like orcs looking like ring race and things. I think that might have been the initial aim, but it sort of went awry a little bit. And then we've got a recent one, which I haven't had a chance to play with. We've got the Great Beast of Agoroth, where you've got the orcs riding one of the beasts that was pulling Grond to smash open Minas Tirith. Oh, yes, this is the one with the eight archers in the top and the spearmen. And the... Yeah, I think it's yeah nine archers and a, a pikeman trying to poke and steer. And I really want to do like a last alliance game but with these as basically playing the role as Mumaks because I think that could be fantastic to put two or three of them down as part of the last alliance mm-hmm. scenario and have them running over men of Numenor. And they're actually a decent f- combat for it because they're, they're only fight three. They've only got three attacks, so they're... Yeah. They're sort of troll level with low fight, but they get to do that smash attack and they've got the great shooting and and they're, they're just fantastic models. And it's a shame that there's only one model available for it. It's a shame it was one of the early Lord of the Rings fine casts as well, so it's hard to put together. But I would love to get a few of them together and have some good games in them because they're a good fun model. And having orcs riding that is really good. Then you move on and you've got orc siege weapons and... These ones, siege weapons are essentially for sieges most of the time, unless you've got a really good role for it. But I love the, the suddenly the military orcs using equipment to do the battle rather than them fighting mm-hmm. because giving an orc a big catapult is probably a smarter idea than than just throwing them in there and then like one elf and one man can beat them up and beat 50 yep. of their mates up. Get them a catapult, get them to hurl a rock and see what they can do that way. This is something I remember from just the first time I read The Return of the King was when the Gondorians are like, no engine of war can cast a boulder over our walls, for our walls are, you know, they're good and tall and they're good and thick, and then the orcs just build bigger catapults. It's like, oh, why <laughs> did we not think of bigger catapults? Oh, geniuses. Oh, I love the orcs. <laughs> Outsmarted by orcs. Mm. Now we're going to move on to basically the orc-level characters from The Hobbit, and these ones are a little bit different in that I don't know what was happening with the orcs in this stage, but they're definitely strong. 
Okay, um, we're starting with Azog, the orc. I personally think with a stat line like that, he should be a Yurikai, but they've decided he's an orc. Yeah, the, the profiles have jumped up. They've put him on par with the, the best of the best good heroes. He's so. on fight seven. Like, that's better than most of the top tier good heroes. And I think we've done a nose line on Azog. But, uh, look, I really like the character. And I like that an orc can be threatening. But something about it... I don't know. I'm in two minds about it. A bit ambivalent about it. But I think I think it's 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 a good profile for what it does. It really poses a threat for, like, a whole, a whole contingent of heroes, which yeah. you have to do. Otherwise, the orcs just get their... Their bums kicked. Mm-hmm. And he's got some mates that were basically for the movies. Yep. He's got Fimble, Nazeg. If I am ever doing Gold Fimble, I'm going to use Fimble's profile because it's close enough name. So Fimble for me is and Gold Fight Fimble. Five. Yeah. Know, not to be sneezed at, especially oh, in an orc. sneeze at that. Definitely wouldn't sneeze at that. And you've got Bolg as well. Yep. We're on to Bolg. Once again, another Fight Seven orc because, you know, Fight so these, Seven's in. These are essentially from, I think they're the Azog Hunters list, but they're basically orcs from from Gundabad and, and the surroundings, so they've really upped them. And then you've got the Hunter Orcs as well with them, who are really nasty models. They've gone for the two attacks at bargain price. So before you had the Stalkers with the two attacks on lethal, and now you're just saying, oh, just give a couple more points to an Orc and give them an extra attack, which is just such an increase. That these Orcs are, are on a totally different level. They are fantastic in the game. Uh, they actually play reasonably well because they've got, uh, the, the weakness in their courage and the defense and their fight value means that they're not perfect, but they are amazing. Mm-hmm. And they're really nice models as well. And they lose the extra attack if you buy them the WAG. Yeah, so. so you can't do anything silly like three attacks on the WAG. So that would be nasty, but they're, they're good models and they've got some captains as well and things. So I like those models. There's also Yazneg, which isn't in that original rule book. He came out in the Desolation of Smaug book and he has a nice rule where Azor can sacrifice him and, and pass some courage tests, which is... I love those sort of rules. Yep. And then there's the alternate Bulgs and the alternate Azogs, just oh, in yeah. case you they've want got even more stats. Yeah, yeah, they've got some alternate profiles. And then they've got the Gundabad Orcs as well, which are your heavily armed ones. Once again, Desolation of Smaug. And these ones are essentially on par with Moran and Orcs, except a bit better courage. So they they cost a bit more, but they've got the better courage. Initially, you look at this and think, what's the point? Why would I bother with this? The Two reasons. One, you get to put them with Bulk and Azog, so that's that's amazing. That's a plus. And two, the courage makes a difference. I've beaten an army, the dead army, with this orc army, and just being able to pass courage test half the time rather than a quarter of the time makes such a difference. Mm-hmm. So that's a difference from courage two to three is a massive jump, and it's probably the yeah. biggest jump in the game. Well, one well, to two might be a little bit bigger. Maybe not. No, two to three is the biggest. Mm-hmm. So you want two to three. Three to four is pretty big as well, so... You want that sort of courage jump, and that really helps you out. Because, yeah, you might have the heroes when you break, but there's still terror every now and then they pin your heroes. And your hunter orcs can take a horn, so having orcs that are sitting at courage four base is fantastic. You can get around it with things like the shamans as well, but I find that it gives you a different way to get it, and it means that you can't just be legless out or anything like that with the shaman or mm-hmm. have your will sapped. Horn blowers are often hard to get rid of, so there's some good option there. I really like the new orcs from the hobbits there. They're scary. They're a real threat. And I know in the books they weren't that much of a threat. Sort of un-orcish. But... Yeah, they're, they're more more orcish. But mm-hmm. I do like them. And, and imagine the orc scouts were on that level. That would be fantastic. Though in the books, orcs were nasty compared to orcs. They still weren't all that special. No, no, they weren't. But it's from Whereas a game point of view and a story point of view. these things are nasty pieces of work. Oh, they are very nasty. Absolutely. And now we're going to move on. 
we'll go to we'll go back to Mordor and we'll look at some of the bigger creations. So I'm pretty sure that Sauron got into this before. Sorry, Sauron got into this before Sauron, and these were things like the Uruks. So we had Shagrat, who was accompanied Gorbag, of course, at Minas uh, Minas Ithil, Mrs. Minas Morgul. Minas Morgul was yep. called Minas Ithil. Oh, was so that was the main city. They were up in their little tower at the side. Chagrat has two stat lines, which is what you really got from the book because you had Shagrat and Gorbag sitting there chatting about the glory days when they used to go off raiding and back when they were tough. And I just like the fact that they then went, hey, let's make a stat line for back in the glory days when they were good and tough. Yeah, yeah, they're reminiscing. as well. It's a fun chapter to hear from the Orcs' perspective and that sort of stuff. I really do like that, that mm. chapter of the book and that's one that I like to reread. There's... Mordor Urukais and Mordor Urukai captains as well. So these are equivalent to the Isengard ones we're going to talk about soon, but they they are, add some niceness and the fight for really helps out with your your fighting prowess. So they're not they're not all that as you said, but they're just enough difference that they are a threat and they they can be scary for especially things like the the Minas Tirith warriors. Yeah, because fight for strength for you know. Yeah, yeah, nasty stuff. And then you've got your elite Urukai as well. They've got the Black Guard, which. Look like they've they've come directly from Rome and and managed to pick that up. The Blackguard captains and Blackguard drummers and banner bearers and and these are these are your really really elite orcs. You've got your strength five, defense six, and fight four across the board. These are nasty yep. pieces of work. They've and, grabbed the shield off the front of the bolt thrower and they're just marching to war. It's one of the few orcs that you think, okay, I'm going to go in with a hero, and if I'm going to get a point of might to kill one of them, I might just do that. Just get rid of them as soon as possible. Most people only have half a dozen of them in their army or something like that. So if you can knock a few of them out early, that's really helpful. But they are nasty pieces of work. And finally, we're going to move on to Isengard. We talked about Isengard just recently in the the Master of Isengard. Isengard gives you some real options for your, essentially your Urukai orcs. The orc options are pretty similar. You've got heroes and lots of heroes. So we've got straight out Lurts. Lurtz was invented for the Fellowship of the Ring to be the ultimate hero and, and the the nemesis. I think if he was done now, he'll be getting an Azog or Bolg profile. But as it was, they gave him a, a an Urukai yes. captain profile. Mm-hmm. Yep. So put yeah, put Lurtz next to Azog and, you know, just have a look at the stat creep. He can't be that bad though, considering Danny won masters with him. I think that was more Danny rather than Lurtz though. So Yeah, but he can't be that bad if you can win masters with him. Like I know true, Danny true. can play. But that's true. Ugluck. I love Ugluck because he's got the head taker rule. So he can chop off an orc's head and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be hero. He just takes an orc or any model, an mm-hmm. orc if he wants, yeah. and increases his stand fast. And this is a little yeah. subtle but fantastic story thing. Uh-huh. I think he transferred well from, from the book into the movie, into the game. He stayed Ugluck. Yeah, and he, he's a great model and, and it was really good that they added him because he was one that came a bit later as well. He wasn't in, mm-hmm. in the initial batch of it, but he's a, he's a good model. We've got Sharku, which is another one from the movies. So this is the basically the leader of the Warg Riders from Isengard, and and he's a he's a nice classic orc, and based on the the word old man, I guess for for mm-hmm. orc shark sharky sharky something like that mm-hmm. sharku I think it was. He's got a metal thing in the side of his face from memory, so his pronunciation's not that great. Yeah, they started to really bolt bolt plates of armor and things to their heads, and and had funs with the prosthetics at this point in time, and go for the whole the orcs are so tough that it doesn't matter what you bolt to them. Then you've got some Urukai heroes. So some of them are new, some of them aren't. Uh, Vrasku, the the one of the experimental crossbow and uh, scout armor that always accompanies crossbowmen. 
well, you know, it's the weight of the experimental crossbow. He can't carry that and heavy armor at the same oh, time. Oh, that's not a bad explanation. Yeah, so so the legless of a Rakai. Then you've got Mahua, who's the sprinter. Lots of attacks, lots of speed. And then he accompanies the fastest guy. So they do a lot of running I, training. I find the interesting thing, because Mahur's point of fame in the book was he was running late. Ah, interesting. And they've so given him up. move eight. To, you know. but, oh, well. I forgot that he was in the book. Yeah, he was too, yeah. wasn't he? He was it in the was, It was the mentioned that um, as the Yurikai were running along in Rohan and the EMR was closing in on him, it's like, ah, oh, we'll, we'll rendezvous with Mahur and his lads. He'll be there, you know. Yeah. Then we've got the generic captains for Urukai, generic Urukai shamans, and so on. So the heroes are normal. You've got your Urukai scout and your Urukai warrior profiles, which are different. So they've got the basically the difference is armor at this point, but the Urukai scouts can be upgraded with Mohur, so you can get some extra speed on them, which I really like. I honestly I would like it if they were say move seven, just something different, and made them give you a reward for taking the lighter armor. But they're they're all quality troops, berserkers. Two attacks, fight. What are they? Fight four these days? Yeah, they're nasty. Uh huh. Fight four, defense six, strength four. Just yeah, they're, they're your original two attack, hard, hard. Yeah. You know, hard back hitting when, front back when line. Two attack cost you fifteen points, not eight points like the hundred orcs. <laughs> and you've got their little cousins, the feral yeah. orcai as well, which uh-huh. I know are popular as well. Where uh-huh. basically you sacrifice some of your your weapon options, yeah. some of your courage, but you get a yeah. pretty damn good package. Some yeah. defense, little well, little less defense. Yeah. Only courage five, because you know only, only. five. Yeah, no, you're right with shamans as well. So mm-hmm. that's not too much a problem. But then you keep going, and you get some really nice equipment options for the orcs. And I, I like these. The I say orcs, but I mean the orcs. So David, give us a rundown of the Isengard orc equipment. Okay, the Urukai can decide to bring with them their assault ballista. Basically, a crossbow to shoot ladders. Yeah, so those giant things they brought with them for the Siege of Helm's Deep, you can bring them to the battlefield. They've got the piercing shot, they can raise the ladders, and they look rather impressive as well. So. Yeah, I love these models. I think I've got two or three of them, and they're, they're fantastic, those crossbows, and love them on Helm's Deep. Mm-hmm. They don't work for the scale. Like, my Helm's Deep's small enough that they're basically right at the wall, yeah. shooting upwards, but they look cool anyway. Let's just ram the wall and see what yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shoot them in the door. But you also get, I think, my favourite of the Urukai options... The Urukai Demolition Team. This is fantastic. And this is one of the choices that yeah. Peter Jackson made that I think was wonderful, where yeah. they used the bombs to blow up the walls and, and uh-huh. found a weak spot. And I thought that was fantastic. Like, Tolkien doesn't really describe Helm's Deep all that yeah. much. His battles are very much they build up, build up, build up, build up, build up, and they fought, and it was over. Yep. There was the weak spot in the book, but it was a lot smaller weak spot. Like, he blew out the grate and some orcs slipped through and... It wasn't the entire wall comes flying apart. No, it was throw Aragon in the air, and it was it was a more subtle weak point. Yeah, <laughs> no, so I really like that. Not and as cinematic for game. I really do like this stuff that that's very high risk, high reward sort of stuff. So you can end up blowing up your own guys, but that's that's just plain fun. Yeah. And the but, Isengard Urukai are so well disciplined that they don't care. Mm-hmm. They send up the crazy berserkers with no armor and a bunch of war paint. They jump on walls and get killed. Yeah. So why would they care? Yeah. About once a year, somebody goes, I wonder if they're competitive. The answer is nearly always yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, to be able to knock down a character in one go with a little whatever you it is. You go, hey, is that Aragorn? Quickly, you, you, you. Ignite. Well, what it does is it's it's almost Aragorn repellent yes. rather than Aragorn killing power because the heroes just run away from yep. it so much and spend their whole time trying to blow it up. There's an objective in the middle of the board. 
We shall place this explosive on the objective <laughs> on the middle of the ward. I used to take the War of the Ring a lot. Um, okay. Because yes. I had a Siege of Rokai, War of the Ring army, and used it for low points. And you could get trays of them. So you basically got a tray of eight models. And they did as much damage to the enemy when they killed them. So what they I used them for was I kept them at the back of my army and just, just left them there for a while. And then at the end game, I'll just run them onto objectives and things. Mm-hmm. And if people attacked them, they'll usually wipe out the troops around them as well. So they were one of those things where you didn't want to attack them, but they were capturing the objectives. Just a single tray of them. And they were, I think they were common troops as well. So you could just drop them down and, and build up your, your trolls or whatever. I can't remember exactly, but they were good fun. And they looked great in War of the Ring because you could put a bunch of bombs on that little tray and have them all holding it. And the models are great. Mm-hmm. So that's all the orc models. We've talked a lot about orcs and inspired about orcs. Just quickly, David, what are our favorite sort of battles to play of orcs? Our favorite scenarios or the favorite way to run orcs of any type? Favorite way to run orcs would have to be some good solid numbers, a couple of ring wraiths because you don't want an army led by orcs. And just, yeah, the old school orc army. I either like the new school hunter orcs. I think I like them in that pure list, just the Azor hunters, nothing else. I think that's a list that's challenging, fun, and, and very, very powerful. But my other favorite way to run it for scenarios and games is the old, old school Last Alliance way, where it's just captains and orcs. Put some banners in. None of this shaman rubbish, none of this other stuff. Let's just go by weight of numbers, equipment options, and things like that, and, and really have a go at them. I don't particularly like running shamans myself. Just because I think I do enjoy the fact that Orcs are Courage 2 and that you need to, to get stuck in. You need to do damage before you break. And I, I they're not the kind of ones that I want to play as a resilient army, so I don't really bother with the Shamans too often. I know they're effective and I know they're pretty good, except if a Ringwraith comes and saps your will. But and there's I, a lot of Ringwraiths out there. Yeah, there days. is. But I like that. But I really, really, really want to run with my, my closing on 240 Orc army some some Golgoth beasts. I reckon they're going to be fantastic to put in there. Give me some artillery and hitting power, and then I don't have to go the troll route. I can go. They could be my monsters. You can always do the war band with the you know four Golgoth beasts and the you know eight trolls. I'm one model off doing that. <laughs> one more beast. I've only got three of them, but that's all right. I'll put them together. I'll paint them up, and they'll they'll be good. Well, thanks for that, David. That was good fun talking about orcs in Lord of the Rings. And yeah, thank you. Certainty of death, small chance of success. A few episodes ago, I mentioned that I wanted to do some maths segments to talk about basically how maths are working in our game. For those who know me know that I do teach mathematics at a secondary level, so I've done some tertiary mathematics. I've done a little bit, and I thought that maybe I could pass some knowledge on to people, or for the people who know it, maybe actually just get us to experiment with what we can do to help out. So I'm my idea of this segment is that it will be an ongoing segment. 
in which I build up basically an, an Excel spreadsheet that does all the calculations for you. So for those who don't want to do all the nitty-gritty calculations and who get bored by my explanations, we'll just be able to grab the spreadsheet off the Facebook page and then see what I've got so far. So the idea is this this is a living spreadsheet. So I'm going to build it as I go and add different things. So the topic for today is about winning fights. So I've started off with something pretty simple in terms of the mathematics behind it. So I've just done the chance of winning fights. What I've considered is the amount of dice rolled. So it should count for any number of dice rolled. I've included some with a negative modifier. So you've got a banner in combat. You've got a two-handed weapon in combat. There's a shade hanging around you. We can calculate the probabilities of that. And I've also included some dice for the rare circumstances when you get a negative two modifier. So this is where you get a combination of those things I've just mentioned. So usually it would be a banner near a shade because it's unlikely that you would do a two-handed weapon attack near a shade. But that's it's a possibility. You could choose to do that. And we can talk about the statistics from that as well. And, and you can look them up as well. So... The main thing is, yeah, I haven't used. The main thing is that I haven't used might in this one. I will include that later on, but I thought that will add quite a bit to the topic, and I thought this should be enough at the moment. What you can do with this calculator is work out the unmodified dice, the neg ones, the neg twos. You can it can tell you what the chances are for an even fight when someone has a higher fight, when there's an elven blade involved for the even fight, and you can sort of use you can use banners in it, but. That's basically you add an extra dice to your best type of dice. So if you've got an unmodified dice, add an extra die to it, and you'll get the statistics. I think that's right. I need to think on this a little bit and just check that if it's right on all situations. It might be once the mic comes in that it's it's a bit different or some other things. So I'm, I've left it out for the moment, and I think I'm going to decide how I'm going to add that in. Um, it could be very simple, or it could be a little bit complex using some conditional probability a bit later on. So this doesn't use any conditional probability. Everything's independent. So all the dice rolls are all on their own. It doesn't matter how many you, you roll. They're all independent. They could all be the same number. They could all be different numbers. They don't actually influence each other at all. So that's useful to know. My method, essentially, I'll talk a little bit how I, how I made this, and hopefully you can follow along, and I'll try and be as clear as I can with it. But the main thing for, for winning a fight, the way it's structured, is that both players roll a number of dice, and... They choose the highest number. Basically, everything else gets discarded. So the, only the highest number they roll is relevant at all. Only the highest number. So it gives you, basically, at the end of the, the dual roll, each player has, has got a number. That's what they've got. They've got a number. You compare that number. You go to whether you've got an even fight or a higher fight or whatever, and then that decides who wins the combat. So the actual structure is pretty simple because there's only 36 outcomes of that essentially so player one could roll a one or two or three or four or five or six as their highest number player two could roll a one or two three or four or five or six as their highest number and you compare those numbers and there is 36 different opportunities so both players roll a six one rolls a six and a five six and a four six and a three so on so on so on now the main difference is adjusting the probability of that if they both have only one dice, it's really simple. There's an even chance of rolling each number. So that becomes a really simple workout. And most people can do that in their head. But when you start rolling a number of dice, it becomes a little bit more difficult to work out what the chances are to roll a certain type of number and then compare that on the chart. So I need to facilitate that in my spreadsheet. I'm going to use percentages throughout because that's just a simple way of comparing them. So I'm not really that interested in going 63.7241 and so on. 
I'll just say it's sixty three percent or sixty two percent or whatever. There's going to be some rounding in here. It's not going to be exactly on. If you want to look at the spreadsheet and get the exact numbers, go for it. But keep in mind, it's probability. It's only for expected outcomes. It doesn't actually tell us any guarantees, of course. So the main work that I've done here, I've made a little little box with all the, the six dice rolls for the player one can do, six dice rolls a player two can do, and then the box crisscrosses and generates numbers, and then we add certain boxes together. So basically, player one, if they've got even fight, Player one's going to win whenever they're ahead of player two. Player two's going to win whenever they're ahead of player one. And when they're even, so the six six outcomes are even, both roll a six, both roll a five, etc. There's half the time that's going to be rolled off. So that's a 50-50. So that's, that's easy to work out and easy to put in the spreadsheet. The Elven Blade is just as easy. You just take the middle one, the person the Elven Blade gets a, a two-thirds chance of winning that instead of a one-third chance of winning that. High fight though is also easy. So if player one has a high fight and they roll a six and player two rolls a six, player one wins that. So you just basically choose different boxes that, that they're going to win with. So I've got that set up as a win percentage and I've got it color graded. So basically you put in the outcomes and it will tell you which are the best opportunities. Basically it's always better to have a high fight, of course. And an Elven Blade's nice if you don't have that. Even fight's usually about middle ground and then having a lower fight is not so good. But that's that's easy to, to go through there. The main work has gone in working out the probabilities of rolling a die. So I'm going to talk about that now and go through what I've done. And I always start this on the simple examples. So I've done I've done examples and I worked it out the the method for it using the two dice example. So when one player rolls two dice and then I tested it for three because I can picture that in my head. Once you get to four, uh, I, I picture a lot of like four three-dimensional shapes and two-dimensional shapes to help me work this out. So once you get to four-dimensional shape, it becomes difficult to, to picture it in your head. You have to use different methods for it, and it's a bit messy. So I prefer to have a rule set in stone by then so that it can get the maths to do the work for me. So consider rolling two dice. I've got two dice. I'm going to roll two dice and choose my highest number. I can imagine that I'll put the dice in terms of a grid. There's 36 outcomes there in the grid. I roll two dice. If I roll six on any dice, I will... Take that as number. Take that number, of course. So that gives me the whole top row and the whole column, and there's a bit of a crossover at the six and six. So it means there's actually eleven times when that can happen out of the thirty-six. So eleven times out of thirty-six. Then you go one step in in your square, and you've got all the results of a five. And you go one step in and the results of a four, one step in the results of a three, a two, and so on. And the one becomes tiny. It's only the one out of the thirty-six. So it sort of builds up, and it, the the six is the most likely outcome. Now, what this is, is the difference between the two squares. So the chance of rolling a 6 is 6 squared, subtract the, ne- the the number below it, 5 squared. So 6 squared minus 5 squared gives you 11. 36 minus 25, 11. The probability of rolling the 5 is 5 squared, so 25, minus the 4 squared, minus 16, gives you 9 times. And that goes down... So that's a way of working out straight away. So without the the, modif- the minus one and the minus two dice, it's actually pretty simple. The formula overall is the number, and I've called this the, the pip number. So I call this P for for just argument's sake. It's probably not the best letter to choose for probability, but so the, the pip number to the power of the number of dice you roll. So n. So P to n, P to the power of n, the pip number to the power of the number of dice roll. That just means 
the, the pip times the pip times the pip times the pip for whatever dice. You just times it by another one. Subtract one less than the pip value. So if you if you're looking for probably a six, you subtract five to the power of the number of dice you roll. So mathematically, that's just p p to the n minus p minus one to the n, and then. That's the, that's the amount of time that occurs. So in probability, then you do it out of. So divided by the possible outcomes. And the possible outcomes is six, because it's six-sided dice, to the power of the number of dice rolls, to the power of n again. So that's a simple formula, and that generates the, the percentages for each one of those. So I can plug that into my spreadsheet, for example, and put player one is rolling three dice, and player two is rolling one die. Player three has a 42% chance of rolling a six. Player one has a 16% chance of rolling a six. So straight away, you can see that player one is in a much better position than that. Conversely, player one has basically a half a percent chance of rolling a one, whereas player two has a 16%, chance of rolling a one. So there's quite a difference there. So that's, that's the three dice. What you'll notice is the biggest jump is from one to two. So from one to two, you go from 16.7 of rolling a six to 30, 31%. And then the next time you go up, you go to 42%. So you've got, your jumps get a bit smaller and smaller each time you add another die. So from turning that one die into two is absolutely vital. That's the, that's the biggest help you can do from terms of winning the fight. Now, later on, we'll talk about winning combats in another episode and, and killing models. But for the moment, let's just say that, that you want more dice. But ideally, getting that turning that ones into two dice are the way to go, which is why I think models like the Hunter Orcs and Urukai Berserkers that have two attacks built in are fantastic because they have this really helpful probability jump already. Now, the difficulty comes into here trying to work out a solution for when you have modified dice. So some dice basically have modified values, and I had to think a little bit about how I'd work this out, and I eventually solved it. So... Let's go from, once again, the two-dimensional example. So there's our number of dice is two. Let's have one die rolled being the normal die and one die being a one minus die. So we look at the probability of rolling a six. Now, one dice I'm rolling has a one in six chance of getting a six. The other one, because it's got a neg one modifier, has 0% chance of getting a six. It cannot roll a six at all. So that one, you might as well ignore that die for the purposes of the sixes. And that's what I've done. I've actually, I've actually done that. For the 1 minus and the 2 minus dice, I've just ignored them for the purpose of rolling a 6. So the formula looks very similar for my 6s. So the 6s, it's just the, the number of unmodified dice that makes a difference. So the same formula as before, totally ignoring the number of 1 minus and 2 minus dice. So P to the N minus P minus 1 to the N over 60N. Then I had to go a little bit more complex to get to 5s because it is possible to roll 5s on the neg one die. And the different difficult part is that that happens when you actually roll a six. So you've got, you're no longer working in squares. You've changed it up a little bit. So you imagine your, your six by six grid again. The one of the, the rows, so the, the six column on one side, six row on one side, whatever you want to do, roll, rows or column, doesn't matter. One of them is blocked out entirely for the sixes. So they're always sixes. If player, if the die roll that's unmodified gets a six, it's a six. That's That's what you're doing. Now we're looking at five. So if that unmodified die rolls five, it's going to be a five. So you color in that, that 
I'm going to say column. We'll, we'll stick with columns. So color in that column next and roll fives. That gives you six opportunities. And then you take the other die. When it rolls a six, that also gives you that opportunity. So when that die rolls a six and the other one rolls a six, it's going to be six. So we ignore that one for the fives. We've already got the first one colored in, and then we add another four. So we've got a total of ten possibilities of getting a five with one modified dice of a neg one and one unmodified dice. So to do that, I've suddenly become made my little grid as a rectangle instead of a square. And it's increased the probability of that. So to do that mathematically, I've had to increase the number and basically make a rectangle. So I've made a rectangle with the original dice roll, so the unmodified dice. So I've done the pip to the to the power of the number of dice. And then I've multiplied that by the pip plus one. So this is where, because my sixes are now included as fives, I've had to put that the other way. So the pip that I'm working on is a five, but I need to include the six. So I've turned that into a six by doing pip plus one. So p plus one to the power of the number of modified dice, ne- neg one dice. So I've just called that M, for for example. I, I've just done arbitrary letters when I've put out the formulas down there. But basically, I've multiplied those possibilities, and then I've subtracted the space next to them. So this is going to be one less than both of them. So it's going to be P minus 1 to the power of N times P to the power of M. Now, once again, sorry about the confusing mathematics here if we haven't followed that. But it basically what it means is it gets rid of the rectangles that are underneath it. So it gets rid of all the values of 4 or less out of my 5 calculation. And then I divide that by the number of opportunities, which is 6 to the power of the number of unmodified dice plus the number of modified dice. So 6 to the power of n plus m. And that works for 5. I've totally ignored the 2 minus dice for the moment because I can't possibly roll a 5. So break that up. And then my main formula that I've got which works for, for four downwards. It doesn't work for one, but I'll explain that in just a moment. It means that I've added another stage to this. So I've got a P to the power of N, so pip to the power of un, the unmodified dice times P plus one to the power of the neg one dice times P plus two to the power of the two minus dice. Subtract P minus one to the power of the unmodified dice times P to the power of M, which is the neg one, times P plus one to the power of, I've said O, to the power of the neg two dice, over six to the power of all the dice combined. And that formula works for all of them, except one. It doesn't work for one. The reason it doesn't work for one is because if your, your pip value is one, and you don't have any unmodified dice, in the formula you're subtracting, you end up subtracting P minus one, which is zero, to the power of zero, and that's an undefined number. We, we don't actually get a value for that one. And when you multiply by an undefined number, it basically makes Excel fall apart and its, its head blows up. So it doesn't give you any values totally. So I basically pulled out the minus part for the, the one, so I changed the formula again, which was the simplest way for me to, to fix that up. There's probably other ways of doing it. There's probably some conditional stuff that I can do, but I don't want to deal with undefined things because all the stuff I'm doing is defined. It, it's it's solid. It's it's there. So I don't need to deal with that. So I've taken that out and it's worked for my calculations, which means I've got this useful spreadsheet that's got all the calculations in there. Okay, hopefully you've woken up now and I'm not going to talk about any more like in-depth maths. I'm going to go straight to the 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 percentages, which is what you want to hear. So I'm going to look at 
I've already talked about the biggest jump being from one to two dice. I'm going to talk about some of the situations that I found interesting that I want to consider. First of all, and I mentioned this last episode, I've been thinking about the Mirkwood Elves attack against the Hunter Orcs. So that's, that's the classic matchup that happens a few times. So straight away, a single Mirkwood Elf has one die. We'll put in player one. Player two is the Hunter Orcs. Got two dice. P1, the player one has higher fight. So they're going to win 42% of the time. Player two is going to win 58% of the time. So the Hunter Orcs got a good advantage there. It's going to win most of the time. Now, if you go and add an extra Hunter Orc in, that increases the Mirkwood Elves attacks by one. So that goes to two. And increases the Hunter Orcs attack by two. So it goes to four. Now the Elf's going to win 47% of the time. So the Elf's got a better chance of winning there. Still not better than even. The Hunter Orcs have got a 53% chance of winning. So the Hunter Orcs are still better to do that. To get that fight in the favor of the Elf, you need to be near a banner. So the banner essentially gives you the equivalent of another die. So it gives you three dice to the Hunter Orcs four, and that kicks you up to a 60% chance of getting that. So that three is the magic number for that Mirkwood Elf. If they were fighting, say, six... Are three hunter orcs, so they're trapped by three hunter orcs. They've got a 53% chance of winning. So the odds are in their favor once they get to the three dice. Once they've got to the two dice, they've got a good chance, but it's still in the favor of the hunter orcs. So I found that interesting for the scenario because in the back of my mind when I was playing with Mirkwood Elves, I always thought that once I got to the two attacks, I'm all good. But it turns out the three attacks is the magic number. So it shows you how important that spearman from the, the palace guard or the banner is. The banners are so important. The next one I was thinking about was the troll. So three attacks of a higher fight value. I don't know about you, but every time I've run a troll, I've always been disappointed with how often it's lost fights. Like It feels like a lot of times it's losing fights. So I've just had a look at this. Now, it's got a higher fight value than most things. So I'm going to say it's got a straight three attacks, higher fight value. It's got an 83% chance of winning the fight. So the person that's against got a 17% chance of winning. Now, what that means is that one in every six fights, on average, it's going to be failing. So that actually starts to get a bit of a worry. Say you're doing something like barging, you might be end up fighting three fights a turn, and then you're losing one of those every three turns. It starts to get a big number. Now, you don't often fight against a model of one attack. You're a big troll. You're a big model. There's either a banner around or a spearman. Let's put that up to two attacks against. So your troll's got three attacks. The other player with the lower fight's got two attacks. You're only winning on a 72% chance now. So you're winning just under three out of four fights. So you're failing quite a bit. Get three attacks in there. Once again, very possible. 65% chance. So 65 to 35. So under two-thirds of the time you're winning. So you're basically losing a third of your your fights. That's that's a big number. So with the troll, ideally... I'll just go into to when it becomes against you. So I'll keep putting this number up. Four, it's still in your favor. Five, it's in your favor. Six, seven, it's in your favor. Eight is when it's suddenly not in your favor. So if you can manage to get eight dice against a troll with higher fight, you've suddenly got better odds of beating it than it does. Eight attacks is a lot, but you can do it if you trap it, throw lots of guys in, maybe hero of a couple attacks, and then the troll's 49%. It's not like it's going to do that. Now, the interesting thing as well with this is, as a troll, the chance of you rolling a six with the higher fight value, is 42% of the time. So it's never going to get worse than 42% chance of, of of winning the fight. So even if we put 100 dice in the evil player, which is not possible, but even if we put that down, it's 42% chance of the troll winning the fight still. So the more dice you add doesn't actually increase your chance to win the fight that much. The troll can't kill a whole amount, so that, that's that's got its own advantages, but you're probably 
better off putting your players and models somewhere else. But as I was saying before, the main thing for the troll is if you can get it to four attacks instead of the three, suddenly, so let's go four against, I'll put against the four. So even number of fights, you're winning almost 70% of the time. Put against the three attacks, you're winning 73% of the time again. Your odds go much better and it's not going to get you're not going to actually ever get worse than an even chance of winning. So the chance of rolling a six on the four dice is the 52%. So you're always going to have the odds in your favor if you have that four attacks. If you manage to get the five attacks, which is possible now with a spear and a banner, you've basically got a 60% chance of winning at worst, no matter what you're taking on. So if you take on, say, uh, let's let's be reasonable, we'll take on three attacks with that because you've got a spear behind you. It's going to be hard for them to get all the attacks in the world. You've got an 80% chance of winning the fight. So... The key is to get those big, important models above their initial attack value. So the attacks three of a troll is good, but getting the fourth and fifth attack makes a huge difference and, and helps you win that fight. So have a go at that. Uh, the other one I've been thinking about is when to use two-handed weapons. So one of the examples I've had is, say, the elves. So a two-handed weapon elf. Now you can spear support a two-handed weapon. Two-handed weapon elf, higher fight than the orcs, goes into a, an orc, shieldman and spearman, and they also got a spearman as well. So we've got two attacks each, but the person with the higher fight has a negative one die. And the other player has a two attack dice. The elf players have only a 51% chance of winning the fight at this point. If they do not go two-handed, they have a 61% chance of winning the fight. So it's a bit of a swing there. Now, if you somehow manage to turn that into two dice to one, so a banner effect nearby, you've got a 65% chance of winning. So... My my thought compared to, well, we'll go to the three attacks. Three attacks is 72. That's not a huge change. So my thought is once you get to that three attacks, that's when you start thinking about the two-handed weapon. And that could be just a banner. So two models with a banner nearby, the two-handed weapon comes in handy. Now, the opposite way is, of course, to try the, the, uh, the orcs using the two-handed weapon. Now, in this case, you go straight two attacks each. You've got a... 39% chance of winning. If you went one of them two-handed, you've got a 32% chance of winning. So your odds are getting worse quite quickly. If you get that three attacks as before, you've got a 42% chance of winning. If you left them as unmodified, you would have a 47% chance of winning. So once again, I think that three is a magic number, and that makes sense with my argument before that the increase from one to two is the big one. Once you get to three attacks, I'm thinking the two-handed weapon becomes a real viable option. And eventually I'll do the statistics on the kills and see if it actually makes a difference. And I'll do the, the, the probability of the combats over a long term and see if it actually has any significant swing to it. Because these numbers get exaggerated quite a bit when you go multiple turns. The last thing I want to talk about here is the importance of fight value when taking down something big like a troll. So... I know I haven't talked about might yet, but there is opportunities now to get, say, ahead of that cave troll or ahead of the other ones. Let's say you really pile in. Let's say you've got, oh, I don't know, you put all your models in the world into that troll. So you've got 12 models into your troll. The troll's only got three attacks. So you've you've really going at this troll. It's 12 attacks. What's that? That's, say, six models in spear support or maybe uh, a captain with some, some other guys, another, another 10 guys. Is it? Yes. Another 10 guys. That's possible, but it's it's basically overcommitting into it. Now, at the moment, you've got a 55% chance of beating that troll. So, better than even odds, 
but the Trolls still going to win almost half the time against your. You're going in with a hero and eleven other guys. You're putting probably a third of your army into this one troll, and you're only going to win about half the time. That's a bit of a worry. If you manage to get a higher fight value, your chance of winning goes up to ninety-five percent. So you've jumped from fifty-five to ninety-five percent with a successful strike. That becomes absolute value. So it's worth having a look at the spreadsheet and seeing when to throw the strike, when the difference between the fight values make a big difference. Now, let's say we do the same example with, say, a more reasonable amount of models. Let's say we've got six models to the three attacks. The jump goes from a 47% chance of winning with the six dice to an 83% chance with a successful successful strike up. So once again, well and truly worthwhile and, and makes an absolute difference. So... So play around with the spreadsheet. Hopefully you've enjoyed this segment. Hopefully you didn't fall asleep too much in there. If you've hated it, let me know. If you like it, let me know. I do plan to continue, even if it's just for my own interest, because I really want to find out all these statistics and probabilities. And, and yeah, it's just fun to do. It's not going to change how I play, really, because I'm pretty conservative in my play style, and, and I, I can do most of the calculations in my head roughly. But... Where I place the models is always more important than the actual statistics. So I rarely go into this situation where it's just one-on-ones and I'm hoping to the odds help me. I'm usually trying to get the odds as heavily in my favor to prevent failures because I do do end up failing a lot. Maybe it's just because I noticed that. But yeah, that, that's how we go there. So that's all for now. This month's Shadow in the Past, we go all the way to the past for the first publication of the Lord of the Rings strategy battle game, the Rulebook from the Fellowship of the Ring edition. David and I are going to go through this book, talk about what we liked about it, what was interesting, what we notice now, and any uses it still has at the moment. So it's bringing back a lot of memories. We've been rearing to go and just very excited about it. And we'll start with opening up the book and seeing what's in it. Open it up to the first page. And it's got a picture of some people playing Lord of the Rings on what looks like a breaking of the Fellowship board. And pretty much it's an introduction to the game saying, there are dice, there are miniatures, get out there and have some fun. It doesn't say it in exactly those words. It starts off, we open it up, and it's got some very nice pictures. One of the, the Buckleberry Fairy being chased by Ringwraiths, and then a last alliance battle with some elves, men of Numenor, and some orc. Okay. I was looking at the first page after the contents page. No, so, and I'm yes, wrong. It I doesn't actually have men of Numenor there. It's just elves versus orcs. And then we go into the contents. The layout itself is a bit dated now, but it's still well presented as a book. But straight away you see some very nice pictures in there, and, and they've really put some effort into the presentation of it. We move on. They've got the typical couple of people playing on a very nice board, which is their Weathertop and Buckleberry Fairy combined board, which is a classic. It looks really good, and that's one that 
really, I think, got a lot of people into the game looking at that and, and imagining they could play on a board like that because it does look fantastic. And it was so different to all the boards we got at the time. I think what impressed me about pictures like this was it was the, the difference in heights because all the boards I played on were fairly well flat unless you put something on it. But just having hills sculpted into your board or having, you know, the rivers depressed. Yeah, I remember coming from, I think I was playing Warhammer 40,000 before this in games like Gorkamorka. And our boards were always essentially like a table tennis table or uh, a, a, just a plain table. They were nothing special at all. So suddenly going on to look at this board and seeing that, that hills could be more than just the old-fashioned books of a blanket over the top of it or whatever they used to advertise was fantastic. And having modelled scenery in the boards was something that hadn't really really taken off in, in the Games Workshop brand of wargamings anyway. I used to wargame at school, so... We didn't even have a blanket over our books. We just played on straight books. Yeah, and terrain was a bit of an afterthought there, but suddenly to have a skirmish game where the terrain was really the game because there's, there's scenarios in this that have five participants aside, so suddenly you need to really get your board looking good. It's it's going to be unsatisfying to have just five models on each side pushing around. We then got the game rules and starting a game, and they split the game rules up into simple and advanced rules, but what I've noticed compared to the new ones is it's really quite short. They haven't gone through all the detail that we've got now. There's no real siege rules. There's no cavalry rules. There's no mumak rules. There's no hand weapon rules. There's less might rules. There's a lot of different stuff. And the courage rules themselves, I've noticed, are very, very different, where you basically, instead of doing the runaway that we do now, you you move backwards and forwards and have this bit of a yo-yo effect. I never played the game when this edition of the rules was current, but that is something that, hang around, that hung around through the two towers and a few of the others. But... It was a case of the models move forwards, they fail their courage test, they move backwards, they pass their courage test, they move forwards. And yeah, you just had this sort of limbo stage where no one was sure quite what was happening. And my the other one is the, the test when the model's on its own as well. So you take a courage test when your model's on its own, and that basically means if it doesn't have a friend that it can see within six inches, and that one they've dropped totally. So now you can run around with a single model, but you used to have to do an, an all-on-your-own one, and if you failed, you made your... Your warrior retreats instead of making his normal move. So the retreat is you, you run away from a, a model or you run to a table edge. So it can be advantageous, but a lot of times it's not. And that was a, a one that, I don't know, I would like to bring it back for some scenarios. It seems like a really cool idea and, and rewarding people for, for going around in teams instead of just one model on its own. I think the problem was it was if you had a single model and they had more than one. So it didn't come up in most games because you had more than a single model. So when it did come up, you just plain forgot about it. Yeah, that was true. It was one that, that just reading back on it, I didn't remember it at all. And I've played through these editions, so it was definitely an easy miss at the time. We've got spells and things, but they're, they're somewhat limited. Rules are different, but I'm not going to go into all the details. Although with weapons, the hand weapons are very different. There's not a lot of detail about them, but then you have rules for picking up weapons. So this was the when the hero kills an enemy model, it gets to steal a piece of war gear? Yeah, absolutely. So you could pass around war gear. And this was really important because a lot of models were only armed with knives and daggers. So being able to take on people who had swords was fantastic because you had the penalties for winning combats with knives and daggers, which things like the elf bowmen had. Uh, I think the elf warriors themselves only had two-handed weapons, two-handed swords. There's really different in weapons, and there wasn't all the options we have now. So they made a huge difference at the time. And then after the rules, you get this fabulous map. And I'm always a big fan of maps. I don't know about the you, David, but the, the maps of Middle-earth, 
I always stop to have a quick look at them, and, and I've seen them before, and I know what they look like, and I know the artwork, but they're really evocative, and and I just love them. This one's probably my favourite. It's that sort of goldy sort of brown colour with the red lettering and the fancy edges and the middle earth with the sword running through it, and it's just one of the better maps they've got. Yeah, it's a fantastic graphic design, I think, because they're obviously designed when the, the books were published and the Lord of the Rings books, and they would have had limited stuff they could do with the graphics, but they just look so so good, and the way they've used the monochrome and with the bit of red into it, it just, oh, they look fantastic, and I always sort of read through them and look at places that I've forgotten about, the little towns and things, and there's not a huge amount of detail there, but it's always surprised me about things like how big Harrod and Umbar and, and Khand are compared to all the, the normal places that we're used to, the, the Gondors and the the Mirkwoods and all those sort of stuff. The Shire, Shire's tiny. Of course, Mirkwood's meant to be big, but then you realise how many of them you can fit in just near Harad. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I talked about in a previous episode how big uh, Mirkwood was compared to a lot of places as well. So it's the scale's really something interesting. And then we're going to selecting troops and forces and scenarios. Now this one, we've got very few kinds of models. We're just going to go through the models that are available so the picking your forces was somewhat limited, and it definitely lent itself to scenarios at this point, which I thought was a great way to go out of the out of the gates with the game. You could do points forces, but it wasn't always the best idea. So we start off with the fellowship. We've got some Fro- well, we've got Frodo, uh, who noticeably straight off has got three points of might, and for only sixty five points as well. So the three points of might that's quite reasonable. Yeah, but you still have to pay for Sting in the Mithril Coat and Elven Cloaks and things, so... So the points stack up. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a standout. We won't go into too much detail. A lot of the stuff will be based on memory because we're not going to read through everything word by word, but there is some changes that we like to, to mention that are highlights to us. Okay, next up we have Sam. He looks fairly sort of stock standard Sam. Yeah, I can't really see any changes straight off. I know that Resistance to Magic has changed pretty in like later editions, but other than that, he's the same. I remember Resistant to Magic changed almost every edition. It was just sort of that odd rule they never quite figured out. Yeah, I could never quite remember what it is. What is it now? Now it's you, if you're out of will, you roll a die, don't you? Yeah, free point if you're out. Yep. Yeah, it used to be at one point that you, every one you rolled, you could re-roll, I think it was, every will. I think you got an, you used to, it was a re-roll at one stage. It might have even been an extra dice at some point rather than, but I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe it was. Mary and Pippin look very similar as well, the old Fellowship editions for them with the Elven Cloaks. So once again, stand the test of time, the old 10-point Mary and Pippins. Gimli the Dwarf, fairly solid dwarf stat line. Um, Has he had a points change, or I'm not sure? 80 points. I'm not sure what he's now. I don't really take Gimli. He no. doesn't appear to have a magic axe, though. Oh, quite possibly. They might have changed his weapon options and, and moved the, the points around. We, neither of us are really points players yeah. at a lot, so most of the time we take Gimli, it's from a scenario that says, take Gimli. Hang on, his axe in here can be used as either two-handed, or he can use his single-handed axe, but he can't use both at the same time, because he doesn't have enough hands. Oh, that's always a problem, isn't it, when you don't have enough hands? They fixed that in the new rules, haven't they, now, where you can just use as many weapons as you want? That's the trick. Yep. Legolas, one thing I noticed about Legolas straight away is his deadly shots made a change. In this version of Deadly Shot, it just gave him the three shots per turn rather than the option of the auto hit. That came along later. And I like the auto hit addition as well because it means that you can use him 
still shooting when there's combat going on. Because this one, the big noticeable thing was once you got into combat with Legolas, he was just a combat guy. And he wasn't a particularly fantastic one. I think he's also got an extra point of fate along the way somewhere. I think he's up to three fate now. Once again, not sure. Gandalf looks pretty much solid. I know he's had some very minor tweaks as well. Main difference I've noticed here straight off is Courage 7. I don't think he's Courage 7 anymore. Testing Courage on Wizards doesn't happen all that often because of no. the amount of will. But we used, used to, we used to get Courage 7 points. a bit. And the reason we used to get Courage 7 was you used to not be able to use will for Courage. So they've really changed it up now because the chance of him failing were, were minuscule. Well, not minuscule, 3% or whatever it is. It's still, still pretty low. Rather low, yes. We have Aragon. He's got his basic Aragon rule which is pretty much all you want from an Aragon. And Boromir with his basic Boromir rule as well. He's pretty solid. Same profiles, which is really great that they've kept most of them the same. That shows some real foresight. Alrond's changed quite a bit. Alrond didn't have magic powers at the time. They had him as a fighter. He has fight nine in this edition and courage seven. And I don't know if he's still courage seven, but he was basically a pure combat model with a two-handed weapon. So back then he didn't have the single-handed weapon. I believe the argument was he survived when Gilgalad was slain, so he was obviously the better fighter. So they gave Alrond the fight nine, which they later gave to Gilgalad. Yeah, I, I like the new edition of that. And I remember them actually being quite active when people gave feedback about the profiles because some of them, they changed very quickly and, and errated, basically. So that when the next book came out, they had changed them up. We've got Arwen, and David, do you want to talk about Arwen? Because Arwen's got a very nice magic power in this edition. Well, Arwen was, well, looking at these stats quite beastly, with three might, three will, and the confound magic power. It's got a six-inch radius, similar to your generic nature's wrath, except it knocks prone every model within this six-inch radius, pushes them until they're outside of the six-inch radius, puts a strength three hit on all of those models, and then deducts one will point off all of them, just for good measure. So a fantastic spell, and it's turned into... What's the, the Nature's Wrath that does that now? There's one uh, there's Wrath of Bruinen or something? Wrath of Bruinen just knocks down with the extra strength. Okay. Or, or channel and Nature's channel, Wrath. Channel, yeah. So it's, it's everything in once plus an extra knocks and will off. So really designed to take on those ring wraiths in, in yeah. a scenario. And unfortunately, they don't have the scenario in this book that, that does that. I think that was in a White Dwarf later. Mm-hmm. Maybe it got cut out. I'm not sure about it, but... What a fantastic profile, and, and obviously very much designed for the scenarios. It's a sap will, a call winds, and a channeled nature's wrath all in one. Hmm. Galadriel's another one that, that's made a fantastic change as well. Galadriel has almost like the Bombadil rule of the time. It's a if they are within a certain area, in this case Lothlorien, she can use her three might points every turn. She can use her three fate points every turn. So, yeah, and Caliborn as well had the same thing, so... If you played scenarios where they were getting attacked in Lothlorien, they were absolute beasts. If you're outside, they're, they're just basically their normal profiles without the armor. Mm-hmm. Okay, next up we have Gilgalad, High King of the Elves. He's dropped down to fight six, and I believe he's lost his magic spear as well. Yeah, poor Gilgalad wasn't particularly nice in this one. He's Elrond's doing the job that Gilgalad did. I think his points are slightly different, but yeah, unfortunately with Gilgalad, they basically set him up to die, so he wasn't anything special here. You've got the Elven Captains, which look pretty similar to what we've got now, with lots of options to choose from, although I'm sure their points are, are different as well now, but that's the case for most things. I'm not too worried about that. But yeah, you can have... They come with a sword, 
and you can give them a two-handed sword. So they're one of the first ones that have the option of both, which is really good at the mm-hmm. time. It's also the armor or heavy armor, depending on which health captain you're trying to build. And then we have Bilbo, pretty similar now. Bilbo sitting around the 90-point the mark. I think he's probably still on that with the old Bilbo rules. And he's changed a lot in the new Hobbit edition, but it's great to see him in this one, especially in his old profile. He's one that I don't think you ever, ever saw when we're doing points matches of this because he's, his points were so far out of whack with some of the other ones you could get for 60 points. He was just, yeah... Resilient, but that was it. And then you've got a few other heroes. Not many more, actually. You've got the Dwarf Kings. In case you wanted a Dwarf Army, you've got Gimli and a couple of Kings. Well, you you could do a scenario where they're making their way to the Council of Elrond, or maybe the Council of Elrond got attacked by a troll or something like that. Or the Council of Elrond descends into fisticuffs. And... That would be even better. Elendil and Isildur, which look reasonably close to what they are now. So Isildur can have the ring. Nazil can do heroic combats. Very similar. Changes to, to some of the stats, fight values and things like that. But other than that, pretty similar. I think Isildur's got a, quite a lot of changes to his heroic stats. In here he's got three might, one will, zero fate. I think he's got a couple of points of fate now and a will and some other things. So they've toughened them up, which is uh, good as well. Captain to Gondor, look at this profile. Okay, so... Well, for a start, they're coming in at 30 points for a captain. So that's pretty good value. Yeah, you take that. They've got the picture of your nice Numenorian up in the corner there. Options of armor, shields, or bow. So, no heavy armor on your Captains of Gondor. Well, these are actually the old Captains of Numenor, because remember, there wasn't anyone from Minas Tirith at this point. So, these were the pre prequel Numenorians, essentially. They called them Warriors of Gondor for a long time, mm-hmm. and then they changed that because the acronym was offensive for for, <laughs> for some people. Also, he's only fight four for the captain of Numenor, as he later became. So, that's the point of interest. Yeah, so he's a bit lower than that, but but pretty cheap price. You've got the King of Men version as well. Looks so, fairly standard. Yeah, but double the points for... for yeah, some stat increases, but not a whole lot. So, mm-hmm. their points were... They're still trying to do that, and I think they probably spent most of the time designing the scenarios and things rather than trying to get the points there, because they're, yeah. they're a bit rough all throughout, and... That's all fine. We've got Guar here as well, which is nice to see Guar here around. Although 75 points seems like a bargain for an eagle with a point of might and fight eight. Though it didn't have monster rules, so that is something. That's true, but it didn't have monster rules for a long time. So, it's, But one attack is the, the, the killer. Mm-hmm. So a bit, bit of a change there for Guar here. And then you had the stock standard warriors. So there wasn't many warriors either. We had our high elf warriors, and they look pretty similar to what they are now. They're very similar, except maybe their fight has been lowered to fight five. Their points have probably gone up a point or two. And they can... What do they do? They come with a hand weapon. Option of the two-handed weapon or the spear. It was free, so you got one or the other. And then you could buy the elf bow or the shield. Yeah, interested in this one, if you could still use the two-handed weapon, choose to or not. I'm not sure about that. We'll have to... I have to go back at some time, but I'm not too worried about that. Going back to Guar here, because I think there's something that people pulls up on if we don't talk about. You could ride Guar here, as long as you weren't carrying the ring. Well, I couldn't ride ride Guar here. A model could. Gandalf or or the like. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. You got, you know, wizards riding great eagles. Yeah. I, I really, really want to do a Gandalf on Guar here conversion now. I've got one spare plastic eagle now, and I've got some spare plastic Gandalf models, so... Well, not plastic, some of the metal ones, but I think that might happen at some point because it's just a fantastic image and I know that you can't do it anymore, but 
who knows? We design like, our own rules. Like they made that scenario with the special rules where Radagast was able to ride the Great Eagle. It's all kinds of fun. Yeah, and it's it's come full circle now. Wood Elf Warriors, separate profile for the Wood Elf Warriors, very similar to what they are now. The Shield didn't do anything special at this point. They're basically the they're Lothlorien Warriors, so they go with Celeborn and Galadriel. And finally, we have the Man of Gondor, which is our stock standard man, Fight 3, points value 8. So they really got that out of whack. So they've made him super, super low fight value and, and high points, and he got changed very quickly. Yeah. Defense 4. Yeah, so pretty much a precursor of the Warriors of Numenor. And then for Darkness, once again, we've got a limited set of troops. We've got lots of options on the ring race still. Uh, basically, you don't get to put the might on them. They, they're only the, the will, but you've got the nine of those, and they've got lots of magic powers. Right, they're over two pages, which is a bit unfortunate, and they've got the notes on choosing them, but they're pretty similar to, to what they are now with the basic ones, so not a huge amount of change there. Lurts, not a huge change. Defense, different a little bit, but not a huge amount. The Balrog's a big change. 250 points for a Balrog? Will as wounds per roll. Yes. Though you can't use that for courage, so it's only for spells. Well, with courage seven... You, you, you don't really need it, no. You're going to fail very rarely. Not a huge amount. Fight ten's nice. Was this the Balrog with the lash, or was that the next Balrog? He has a lash attack, this one, yes. And he has the Goblin Mastery, which I think he's still got. But yeah, he's 250 points. They probably just tacked that on and probably didn't playtest it against point and match games, and they didn't have a lot to choose from to playtest it against, so... You understand the error there, and that's that's a big change there where it's doubled in points, and it was only really scenario, and the aim of the scenario was just to avoid it. Run away, run away, run away. It was an expensive model too, so they probably thought didn't need as much playtesting because not as many people would have one. Yeah, quite possibly. Definitely wasn't one at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was a, an example of sometimes in this, and they're still there where you get models, the rules early on, they, the models themselves came out quite a bit later, and they weren't allowed to show them till the movies, and we got... That one was one that they didn't show in the book and then they showed later. But things like Sauron didn't come out till almost at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring book. Maybe even came out early, Two Towers. So they've always been doing those models a bit late. And the most recent example, I think, was Smaug, where there was the, the people in the know said it was never coming out. It was never coming out. It and was suddenly, too big. You couldn't do they it. Couldn't it, was do just... it. No, they couldn't do it. And then they all backtracked and said, I don't know what we meant was it's coming out from Forge. No, it's not. Well, maybe. Anyway. So, Saruman. Saruman with the bowling ball. Looks pretty similar. He's he's a wizard. Equivalent to Gandalf. A little bit better. Carrying one of the versions of Palantir. Once again, another rule that changes every so often. Yeah, we won't go too much into those because I can't remember how they've changed. They, they've modified them a lot. We've got a couple types of captains. We've got orc captains. We've got goblin captains. We've got uruk captains. The main thing about... This was, it's not actually in this profile, but orcs only moved five inches. So orcs and goblins both moved five inches. The Urukai captains were the the scout ones, but you could give them heavy armor, I believe. I'll just check up their basic profile. Yeah, they had they had good defense to start with. So they've gone down in defense and they've got a bit worse, the Urukai. They're what we would consider the, the, the siege Urukais now. Orcs and goblins, pretty similar. Not, that's all the evil warriors. Oh, one more. The cave troll. They have a cave troll. Cave troll, once again, looks pretty similar. Points have changed. Some of the weapon options have changed, but pretty close to what it is. So those profiles, in terms of use now, they're great for nostalgia. It was fun to go through them there, but they're of limited use going ahead of time. So this is going to get into the meat of this book. 
is the scenarios. So they talk about scenario format. They talk about make up your own scenarios. They actually have a note about if your experience changed the scenarios, that would be too easy for you. So that's a, a decent one. It's one that people should consider as well. So especially the fellowship scenarios, as you play, you get better. First one is basically play what was in the box set. And the box set came with a very strange array of troops. There weren't a lot of models out at the time. There was some plastics. You got basically, what was it, four men, eight elves. No, double that. 16 elves. pack came with, you know, yeah. 16 elves, eight men, and 24 goblins. So really odd collection, especially because the goblins didn't really fight against the last alliance. Well, they might have, but not in the movie, not those particular ones. So you got a little scenario designed to play with that. So skip through that. They've they've put that in always, just play with the box set scenarios, but it's... It's an introduction. The Weathertop scenario is fantastic, and, and it's been one of the mainstays of the the game. So scenario two, Weathertop, you used to be able to buy a box with all the participants for it, and that was just a fantastic scenario box. The terrain they've got in this is fantastic, and that's changed lots and lots of times, but it's just a great scenario. The whole, the whole concept of it works for the game. It's one of the iconic moments from the movie, so... If you're going to build a scenario, Weathertop's one of them. Yeah, and such a good introduction to the game where you, you get the book, you get the game, see if you like it, and you see, okay, I can make a scenario with one purchase. Mm, I'm going to have a go at that. Next up, we have Balan's Tomb. So this is the fellowship surrounded by a whole bunch of goblins and a cave troll, I believe. Yeah, so they make good use. 36-ish goblins, a cave troll. So couple lots of, of captains. Troops. Yeah, yeah, good way of get into that and that's a classic scenario as well it's on a four by four board so it's quite a big big one but yeah that's a fun scenario next we have the bridge of kazakh doom once again the fellowship they're being chased by all manner of bad guys and i believe there's a balrog in there yes there's a balrog you would hope there's a balrog i don't know they might have Maybe they couldn't find him or something, but... No, no he, is, he is tacked in on a, the end there. He's a Balrog, yes. There's a Balrog in the scenario, and that's the classic runaway from the Balrog scenario. If you get in combat, you're in a bit of trouble. Yeah, stand Gandalf on the bridge and let it have it. Yeah, have some magic on it with the, whatever it is, 10 will resistance against it. It has 10 <laughs> <laughs> wounds. Good luck. Flight to Lothlorien. So you had the one where they're running out of, of Lothlorien, or flight to Lothlorien. Sorry, going to Lothlorien, being chased by goblins. This is this is a fun scenario because you've got the fellowship allied with Haldir and some elves. So first time you've got some defenses there, and you've got in this case you've got like forty eight goblins. So they're straight away going into it. Uh, lots of goblins in this one. I know we've had a few versions later in that, but that's that's another nice scenario. It's really cool that the participants are so simple in these. It used to be mm-hmm. used to be very simple. Add fellowship, add goblins. You've got a scenario. Yeah, not like 17 different types of goblins, three prowlers, one with this weapon, two goblins with an extra hat, one goblin with slightly longer legs, one goblin with a backpack on, whatever. It's it's great that they haven't changed all that. Then we've got Ammon Hen, and this is another classic scenario. So they're, they're hitting all the real key points of the Fellowship game. You've got a huge amount of Urukai here. This, considering they're metal Urukai, 40 Urukai in total troops against the, the partial Fellowship now. About Gandalf, that's a, a bit of a taller order in terms of buying the models. And this is where the game itself, you looked at it and think, okay, I can afford that, I can afford that, some plastics, yep, 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 suddenly 40 metal models. That can't be done. It's just... Yeah, it's a big jump up. And <laughs> after that, turn the page. And this is part of the reason I wanted to talk about this book is the last Alliance scenario, the original last Alliance scenario. They've. I'm going to read one paragraph out from it. It says... 
Rather than try to represent the entire battle with thousands of warriors, we've taken a slice of the action centered upon the greatest heroes of the good side. There are enough participants to capture the feel of a bigger battle ranging all around. Okay, so how many participants do we have, David? Well, for the good side, we are looking at... 24 men with spears, 24 with swords, and 24 elves with two-handed weapons, 24 elves with bows. So straight out, you've got... 48 men... 48 hours. Yeah, and then the four heroes. So 100 models on the good side. So just a slice of the action. And what, what evil models do we have to put up well, against that? To fight our 100 good models, we have 60 orcs with bows. Okay. And the remainder, which is 180 with either swords or spears. So 240 orcs. And then how many captains? Led by eight captains. Yep. Okay. So you've got almost 250 orcs, which at the time were only available in metal. Fantastic models. I really like these models, and I'm I'm inspired to do this, and I've actually almost got enough to do 240 with the Metal Orcs, but I'm thinking at this point I'm just going to concentrate on converting them and make sure I have 240 different varieties of, of Orcs, all different, trying to do the scenario. This one, I think, was put in as a, a blow-your-mind scenario. Like This is not within the realms of most normal players to do at the time, but it really opens your eyes to what can be done. Um, I'm willing to bet it's not particularly balanced and not particularly well playtested just because of the sheer number of models, but I am going to give it a go. That is going to be my challenge. I'm inspired. I'm going to do the 240 yeah. Orc Challenge. That's why it's here. It's it's to kick off the imagination, to make you think, well, what what can you do? What, what's possible? Yeah, 240 Orcs versus 100 good models. It's possible. And they haven't even said the board size in these ones. So they say it should be on a big board. Start 24 inches apart. So, yeah, it should be on a big board. Yeah, have have a couple of hills, a couple of rocks. Yeah, you're all good. And then they actually have quite a good scenario to finish off with, which is the, the Gladden Fields. So this one, I think, was doable. Once again, 40, 40 metal models was a lot. But you had the men of Numenor, led by Isildur, fighting their way through. And I've played this one. I actually really enjoyed the scenario. And this is actually one of my more favorite Gladden Field scenarios. It just works really nicely with lots and lots of orcs and lots and lots of men and only a few few heroes. So these scenarios... If I'm honest about them, the only ones that I would really consider this book being being good to get for is probably the Last Alliance one, and then maybe the Amon Hen one. I think those two are, are good classic scenarios and probably still play pretty well. And you could actually do the 40 Urukai Scouts now with the new rules. Mm-hmm. Gladden Fields is a good one as well, but the others, they've had so many other editions now, you probably don't want to get this book just for those scenarios. They're all fairly similar, the Gladden Fields, from memory. Yeah, they started getting things like stalkers and things in there and some other craziness and trying to show off the latest models. So it's good to have the just back to the classics. Then we go into our how to make our miniatures. So we've got our modeling section, which has become a mainstay of the books, how to put together metal models, how to use your pliers with bright yellow handles, how to use your your green stuff, how to use your paintbrushes. With the nice bright red paintbrushes and the... Yeah, very, very old-looking stuff, and even the tissue box is incredibly bright. I don't know how you get a tissue box like that. And then you've got the pallets done by, and it looks like it's on a paper plate, is it, or is it a ceramic plate? It could be ceramic. I can't really tell. I'm just trying to read the adverts in the background, because they've got it set on some newspaper. Oh, you're reading the newspaper they've got it set on, yeah. The the old Citadel colour guide with scab red and red gore and blood red and all these sort of colours, which is well and truly out of date now. I think I still have a few of those colours, but... I don't doubt it. Some of them actually lasted pretty long. You've got uh, undercoating models and, and basics like this, which is everyone knows how to do at the moment. And if you don't know now, you just go on YouTube or a forum. So that's of little value. 
applying color once again, not particularly great. But we do get eventually to a nice little section here and, and probably two pages which I think are really solid are the conversions and the making flags page and there's some really classic conversions here. So you're looking at a few of the standard sort of hand swaps and whatever but then you get on to your, your drilling out things to insert spears and the designing of banners and chopping up your Elrond to make captains. And... Yeah, the Elrond into the elf captain I thought was a great one. I really The, the Numenorean where they just put a sword on him is, is a classic one and so many people have done that. They've got some goblin conversions as well. And then the high elf, turning the high elf spearman into a banner, it just looks great and, and really fantastic conversions there. And then you've got an orc drilled out to have a banner as well. And, and the old paper banners where you make it paper, put some PVA on it, away you go. Mm-hmm. They actually look pretty effective. Had no rules at all in this, but they look pretty good. Then I think out of the modeling section, the part that you really want to use is the the making terrain. It's, it's always good. Making terrain is always good. They've got the cloth, the blanket over a book thing. So I'm glad they've got that. That's fantastic. They've got some nice trees where you basically get the wires and wrap stuff around them and put foliage at the top, and that's a classic technique that works really well. Mm-hmm. Wrap them in masking tape and yeah, spray them a few few interesting colours. Yeah, away you go. And then making rocks by using rocks. This is a good one. And also making rocks by using foam. But after all that, all joking aside, we've got a fantastic generic mountain boards. See, it looks like it's about a four foot by four foot display board that you can play on. Maybe it's even a bit smaller than that. It might be a three by three. Not entirely sure. But it's got these basically layered foam uh, hills, I guess, at the side where the models, there's enough flat areas that the models can be climbing up the hills and there's some paths and, and lots of rocks and really quite dense terrain. And it looks really good. The the mountain itself has lots of cave entrances, so I can imagine really cool scenarios where you'd have goblins coming out of the holes in there. and Or in new rules, you could have bat swarms or whatever that emerge from them. Yeah, and... it's so evocative, and it's it's almost how I imagine reading through the books where, you know, when they go past mountains and there's, like, goblins and things there, you imagine these little holes and, and one or two goblins came out and scare you. Mm-hmm. And then they're, they're fantastic weathertop slash buckleberry fairy board, which, once again, looks really great, and... And the same looks like the same design as yeah. it looks really well done. Uh-huh. It's the weather top in one corner, Buckleberry Ferry down the bottom, or if you want, it can be the seeing seat and the boats. It's just their generic multi-purpose scenario board. Yeah, and it, it just looks really good. Then they've got basically modular, modular terrain boards, which once again look really good. They've put some depth to them. They've got some mm-hmm. like rivers and water features with, with some serious mm-hmm. depth to them based on foam. Mm-hmm. They're a lot brighter than the current sort of modular boards we get, but it's the Fellowship of the Ring, so it's the Shire, it's places with large rivers. It's, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You yeah, can the, afford to be bright. But this was this was basically just coming out of the nineties, and and this is where you had like Goblin Green bases and things like that. It was bright time for wargaming, and then you go through. You've got a bit on the gaming hobby, which is filler. They've got a bit on how to buy your white dwarfs, uh, the website, which is so far dated. I know at the at the front, I think they had the AOL code you can use to get to their website. You got your mail ordered, like phone numbers. If you want to use your mail order that way, you've got the collection of models that's available, which is not a huge amount and quite nice models, but not a huge amount. Talk about stores, some more pictures, and then summaries of the rules at the end. So if you want to use the book and try and find the rules, you've got some few pages. But the designer notes are actually kind of cool. So I think we might finish off this section. They've got some commonly asked questions. We won't worry about that. Let's read through the designer notes, David. Take a couple paragraphs and then swap it over. Designer's notes. The chance to work on the Lord of the Rings battle game 
has been a great privilege and an adventure in itself, and without doubt a dream come true for our design group. Getting everything ready in time was undoubtedly hard work, but it was work cheerfully and purposefully undertaken by the whole team. Every one of us was aware that a project like the Lord of the Rings battle game only comes along once in a lifetime. Our game was to be based on the Fellowship of the Ring, but at the same time it had to be flexible enough to include all the extra characters and warriors featured in the whole movie series. As far as we were concerned, that meant the game had to work with a handful of models on each side, or with hundreds of models on each side. An encounter between groups of adventurers and full-blown battles, with hordes stretching from horizon to horizon. Why we were about it, our game had to be a real game, the sort of detailed game that would appeal to hardcore players. At the same time, we knew that for many purchases, this would be their first tabletop game, so it was important to create a game that would be reasonably easy to assimilate. But most importantly, we wanted to design the game that we would play and enjoy ourselves. Those were our basic design parameters, and with that in mind, we gradually set about evolving the game you have in your hands. Of course, there is more to a tabletop game than the rules manual. There are models to be sculpted, appropriate artwork to be generated, and all details of packaging and production to be considered. So whilst the game's design team started to plan how the game was going to work, the sculptors were already busy turning the beautiful film images into exacting three-dimensional models. You can see some of the sculptors at work in the accompanying photographs. To begin with, our design team came up with a whole bunch of different ideas about how the game might work. We played and we played, and then we played some more gradually sifting the ideas until we were happy with a core system that we could embellish at leisure. The core of that system is the way both sides move, shoot and fight together, with priority establishing the side that moves and shoots first. Although quite simple in concept, the ramifications of that are quite demanding. Having priority can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing depending on the situation. Sometimes you want to move first to seize the initiative, and other times you want to wait and see what the other guy does. Either way, good players soon learn to think a turn ahead so they can make the most appropriate actions depending on which way the priority role goes. We soon developed the shooting and combat systems, using the strength and defence characteristics to give us the dice roll needed to take out an opposing model. That was fairly straightforward, but the hand-to-hand fighting rules went through several permutations before we arrived at the finished result. We were looking for something that evoked a sense of combat as well as representing the prowess of individual warriors. Which is why we plumbed for opposed dice rolls, where each player rolls against his opponent. For statistically minded players, the implications of the combat rules will provide plenty of food for thought. A warrior's fighting ability, his fight value, will give you an advantage on ties, which is a 1 in 6 roll when rolling 1 on 1. When a warrior is forced to fight 2 or more enemies at once, his advantage is vastly reduced. Similarly, a warrior capable of more than one attack rolls multiple dice and is therefore more likely to equal or beat his opponent's score. The basic statistics reward players who succeed in bringing greater numbers to bear, but also better fighters to hold their own if they stay lucky. The stars of our game are of course the heroes and heroines and their enemies, the evil monsters and dread foes that for the sake of argument we also call heroes, though perhaps anti-heroes might be more apposited. Representing the strength at arms, fortitude and plain good fortune of our heroes pose something of a problem. How do you make Boromir a fantastic fighter and yet human, vulnerable to sword and arrows of his foes, but still immune to the vagaries of luck that accompany any dice-based game? We did not want our Boromir to perish for the first shot of the game, after all. To give our heroes some real heroic character, we came up with the three special characteristics, might, will and fate. Only heroes have these, and unlike other characteristics such as strength and defense, 
These were to represent a store that each hero expended throughout the game. Might is the most useful as it can be used to add to a dice roll. For example, in combat, turning a defeat into a victory. Will is used to cast spells and use magical abilities, as well as to defend against magical attacks. Fate is used to save a character's life once all else fails, representing something like luck or destiny. The combination of these three allow heroes to behave very heroically indeed, at least until their might, will, and fate run out. Rick Priestley. So overall, this book, I've really enjoyed looking through it. It gives back such fond memories. Is it worth you getting now? Hmm, probably not. Depends how much you're paying for it. That's the real point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's if it's cheap, yeah, pick it up. But if it's if people are trying to charge you eBay prices or anything silly like that, mm-hmm. I would give it a miss. There's not a huge amount of value for it. I'm going to go back for it for the 240 orc scenario, and I expect that to be well and truly out of whack and out of balance. But we're going to have a great time anyway. With 240 orcs, you would have to finish it before you found out whether or not it was out of balance. Yeah, let's just play for it seven or eight times to see if it's balanced. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Book a month off. Let's go for it. So thank you very much, David. Thank you. Now we return once again as Jeremy and David with a segment about some particularly inspiring modelers that have got my attention of late. We got in contact with the people at 50,000 Orcs, 50,000, so spelt with numbers, 50,000, and then Orcs with a K, non S, because they're German, and they showed us some fantastic dioramas, and I've just shown David these pictures, and... I don't know if we're going to get a lot of speaking in this segment. So basically, start if, you, if you're not going to listen to us, which is absolutely fine, go to the Facebook page, 50,000 Orcs, and check out some of the photos here because we are just amazed at these Lord of the Rings dioramas made of the 28mm models from, from the Lord of the Rings system and also a mix of historic parts. And their current challenge is make your diorama with 50,000 Orcs. And it sounds ridiculous and it sounds over the top and, and we get daily postings about an orc conversion on this site. But some of the dioramas these guys have done in the past are just phenomenal. And we've been looking through, we've got like Mumax at Palinor Fields, we've got Helm's Deep displays, we've got some historic battles, we've got Rohan attacking and just some really fantastic ones. The picture of the Rohan I saw when I first saw their page, I actually thought it was a photo of of real people when I first looked at the small one because the the clothes and things that they're wearing and the way that the the trees are there it just looked quite historic, quite realistic. So David, I want you to go through some photos and just give us some quick thoughts about some of these. This is the first time you've seen them and I want live on air some of your your thoughts. First one I'm looking at looks like a scene out of the movie. It's got a Moomark looks like the commander's fallen off and is dragging it to the side, the howdars coming apart. In the background, I can see one, two, three, four, five, at least six other Moomarks standing around behind it. It's surrounded by circling riders of Rohan, there's screaming blokes in the Howdar. It's Yeah, it's everything you want, isn't it? And it's what we want our game to look like when we play it, don't we? And it's one that 
to be honest, our game doesn't always represent this because we, we work on a smaller scale. I know the War of the Rings system came out and tried to, to bring it up to this scale, but once again, people played as a skirmish, essentially, with only a couple of trays on each side. But they're just fantastic. And the, the number of models is, is a quality of its own, isn't it? It's just really amazing how many models go into these dioramas. And I was talking to Peter Herfin about them, and they set them up for displays around Germany and model conventions, and they're all portable displays. So they can take them down. They use herbs to fill in all the models' bases and the grass areas, and it just looks really, really wonderful. And I don't know. The, it's a shame that people like Games Workshop haven't got in with these guys and, and taken some photos for their for their books and things because it's just entire it's just absolutely inspiring and it's the first time that i've really got in contact with diorama makers we've always been told that a lot of the range is made for people who make dioramas not necessarily for gamers and this is just real evidence of it these people would have bought as much models as, as some of our whole communities have bought quite easily like we might be able to match them say on the number of mumak if you counted everybody we've ever met that owns one but the amount of riders of Rohan, the amount of orcs you've got running around at the base of these things. Like, I've swapped over to another photo now, and it's a zoomed-out shot of the Siege of Minas Tirith, and there's just these dense blocks of orcish infantry marching towards the city. Yeah, that wall, guess how how long that wall is? Well, it doesn't all fit in this photo, so... And, like, the Mumak are tiny, so... Yeah. That's a pretty big wall. Nine and a half metres long. And they've got defenders right the way on top. They've got catapults drawn up against it. The siege towers in the background there that make the Mumak look small. So those are some big siege towers. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a Grond later on that you'll find, which looks tiny. It looks like a, okay, a six yeah. mil scale Grond, but it's actually in 28 mil scale. And then it's, you see the orcs standing on top of it, and you're like, okay, that's a fair size Grond. Yeah, it was fantastic stuff. A lot of the stuff was bought from those of the Siege of Minas Tirith diorama, which I think was their first one from an old company, uh, Tomarillion, I think it was, who can't actually sell some of the models anymore because I think they were just too close to the, the Weta Workshop designs and things, so they got asked to remove them. But they had things like trolls that pushed siege towers. They had, I think they had some siege towers and they had a Grand model and things like that. So basically designing for, for people like this. I think they were a German company as well, so they probably, probably got in contact with Peter and the guys at, at 50,000 Orcs and helped them make those. But they're just awe-inspiring dioramas. Yeah. I've now got a photo, it's a damaged siege tower, it's probably been hit by one of the trebuchets, and it's a diorama in itself, like, and then you put it on a board with a whole bunch of others, but... Yes, absolutely. Like, that's its own diorama sort of thing, but no, it's not. It's yeah. just part of a bigger one. Only so much we can say about this, but go, go check out this page. David, dioramas. Mm-hmm. If we were to do a diorama, what what do you think we should do? Like, are we after a large one? Or well, we after we're after one that we can do. So we we probably, we would go probably higher quality overall for the painting, but a hell of a lot less models because oh, we yes. just don't have access to this many models. So I'm thinking if we're going a diorama, we'd probably start at something like Weathertop or whatever. So something that looks good, but... I think we can go a bit bigger yeah, than well, that. Now I've seen this, we're going to have to go something bigger. Like, let's grab a section of Helm's Deep or let's, you know, yeah. the Shadow of the Hornburg, I don't know. I'm thinking we stay away from the castles and that because we always scale them down. So it might be even okay. be like a, like, I think like a Gladden Fields would be a fantastic diorama where we had like hundreds of men of Numenor against a lot of orcs and taking down a sword or like, and then had it 
So it was obviously them being on the move. Maybe something like, remember the scene when the Rohan got all the baggage trains and they're coming through and they get attacked by the Warg Riders? Okay, something yes. like that we could do with, with 100-ish Warg Riders attacking yeah. or whatever. Could look fantastic. But I think that's the kind of scale we would have to go through. And then you have do all it. the wagons and you have all, all, yeah. the, all the civilians and the refugees and... And we would probably, of course, turn it into a game and a scenario. But I'm I'm really inspired to do a big scenario because we do a lot of really small scenarios, and and I'm I'm starting to work towards the 240 orc one from the Fellowship book, which we've talked about on this episode, or we're going to talk about this episode, depending on which order I put it in. And this is this has just made it inspire me to do it because for a while I was thinking 240 orcs, I'm never going to get that done. That's bigger than War of the Ring units. That's massive. That's huge. I'm not going to do that. But to see these guys putting together 50,000 of them and the sheer, just the spectacle of that is just breathtaking, really inspiring. And, and suddenly the 250 orcs doesn't seem like that much. You could always do like the last stand at the Black Gate. So you have, you know, Rohan on one hill and Gondor on the other as the orcs sort of lap them in yes. a figure of eight and... Yeah. I would also wouldn't mind doing some of the, the stuff from maybe Unfinished Tales or the Silmarillion or something like that where you've got uh, excerpts of the Doing something like maybe the Siege of Lothlorien or um, what was the one, Dale? Was it Dale or was it, yeah, Dale got attacked in the, the War of the Ring? Uh, yep, Dale got attacked. Pretty well everywhere got attacked in the War of the Ring. So. Yeah, some of those ones would be fantastic. So getting together and doing a lot of models... I think it would be great. And I, I would I would like to turn it into a game. I would like to get out a board, get on a, a big, big board, have an, have an afternoon, maybe sometime in the summer holiday where we get together and probably start by putting him down as War of the Ring. In that case, the Fall of Gondolin is one I've been thinking about for a while because you have massive, you've got the massive walls, you've got the drawn up for a siege, and then you're attacking this wall with dragons and you're attacking this wall with Balrogs and you're going... Yeah, there's shoulder-to-shoulder elves up there, but I'm going to breathe fire at it. Yeah, something like that where multiple mm-hmm. Balrogs and, and then have the Balrog minions with those dwellers in the dark or whatever like that. That yeah. would be fantastic. So I think we're inspired about this, and I've been I've been madly putting together converting orcs, painting orcs in my own imitation of of the these sort of dioramas, and, and I know that I'm never going to do something on this scale. I don't have the space to do that. I probably don't have the inclination. I'm more about doing every part of middle earth rather than doing one part on a massive scale but i i they're so inspiring and the models themselves are painted at a, just a generic tabletop stand or maybe even lower some of the cases but it doesn't matter at this scale there's just so much detail there with the poses and the conversions and the layout of the models and everything's telling a story that it doesn't matter about that and that's mm-hmm. inspiring as well and when the diorama is that large, you can't really get up close to the models to have a look. It's no, just too could, many of them. You could cheat and put your nice models at the front and then put the rest there. But imagine things like the um, the old like, Fate of the Witch King diorama in the middle yep. of the Palinor Fields battle. Or... And you could have Spot the Fate of the Witch King. Yeah. Stand there for about an hour looking for it. Oh, this is this would be amazing stuff. So, David, let's let's put together a massive spectacle game like this at some point. I reckon we aim for the end of the year. You're aware that I paint about one model for every about, I don't know, 70 that you paint? No, I'm thinking you're going to have to set up the background. You're going to have to give us a story. You're going to have to do the research. That's where your strength is. I can get onto the models. We'll get your brother onto the models. We'll we'll get a group into there. But I would love to do something, and maybe we use the War of the Ring rules, try them out again. Maybe we we play the skirmish rules and we play all night or something ridiculous. But uh, I really, really, really want to do something like this on a massive board, massive table. Just get us all together and, and have some fun. And who cares about the outcome? Just put some stuff together. Maybe we do Palinor Fields. Maybe we get out all our mumucks and, and have a laugh there. 
Uh, yes, give me an excuse to paint my third Moomark or whatever it is. Yeah, I've got about that many as well. So, so a half dozen to eight for us starting, mm-hmm. I think, would be a good start and mm-hmm. and manageable. It's doable because we're going to need a hell of a lot of orcs and and men of Gondor and Rohan around as well. So that could be really good fun. I might even paint up my fate of the Witch King diorama. We have to decide what color bases we're going to use before we all start painting. And no, no, we'll just get the we'll get our board going. And we'll just bury it in sand. If and the hearse. board's big enough, you can have different styles of basing on different you know areas of. Oh, no, I think you're <laughs> overthinking it. I think it's it's one of those ones where just the the quantity of models is gonna mm-hmm. it's gonna be the spectacle of itself. I don't think we can worry about things like making sure that everyone's eyelashes are the same color and things like that. That's a bit too extreme. Cloaks or no cloaks. And- yeah, yeah, cloaks. Yeah, let's go cloaks. Yep. So that's a little quick segment there. Go check out the page. We even add to it. I'm, it's it's inspiring for it. We're both excited about this and and these pictures. I can just stare at for a long time. They just look fantastic. And most of them don't look like miniatures at all. They look like scenes straight out of the movie or someone's put together with CGI. So it's amazing. They have so many conversions. If you want to get some ideas for your orc conversions, go on the the fifty thousand orcs Facebook page because. They, they post a conversion today, and some of them are fantastic and simple. Some of them are, are really out there using historic parts and things, and others are pretty pretty average. But when you're doing 50,000 of it, it doesn't matter. You just put them out there each time, and you strike gold sometimes, and other times you, you hit fool's gold, but who cares? They're, just the amount of them looks great. Welcome to Making Middle-Earth, the segment where we talk about creating Middle-Earth in all its forms, conversions, painting, and such. Today, I'm actually talking about some ideas and Photoshop models that were posted on a lot of our online forums just recently by a Polish fellow called Jacek Bielanski. I've probably pronounced that terribly. I'm very sorry. I don't know Polish. But he's posted a huge amount of models that he's basically converted digitally, so to speak, from some existing Games Workshop models and modified them to create some fantastic ideas for conversions. Now, I'm going to post a link for this on our Facebook page as normal, but I wanted to go through some of these ideas and talk about how we could actually make them a reality. Because some of them, it's possible, some of it's not, but I'll go through and I'll look at that because I'm very excited about them and there's some that I'm definitely going to give a try very recently. The disclaimer, of course, is I haven't actually tried any of these. There are ideas at the moment. It only just came out recently, but I'm very excited about it. So I thought I'll put it on the podcast episode because this is the perfect segment for it. First up is a Sour on the Necromancer. And this got our, all our attention. It's created a nice dark gray black scheme. It looks like the original model, except the upper capes and the upper cloths have been really extended out to give it almost bat-like wings, which really looks fantastic. So instead of being 
a shape where it's essentially a, a triangle with a point of his helmet. It's gone the other way. The the smallest part is the base, and it comes up into a big triangle shape with a silhouette. Absolutely fan, looks fantastic. I really want to do this conversion. Now, how would I do it? I would probably consider making these capes by rolling out a flat piece of green stuff. So making essentially, it's a banner technique where you, you get a flat piece of green stuff on um, a hard surface or some, some non-stick surface. You roll it out as thin as you can. You cut it to the close shape as you can. So you've measured up, pre-fitted it, all that sort of stuff. Then you essentially wait until it's almost dry and then bend it into shape and place it there. You've got to be really careful doing this. And you want to do it over time. And then once that's totally cured, I'll actually start sculpting by by whittling away the edges. It would be a very tricky conversion, and I'm I'm not sure how it would work out, but I definitely want to try this. So I might have to get my hands on another Sour on the Necromancer model and, and play around with it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's only in metal now or fine cast, but uh, either way, I think this is well worth the effort. And if it, if it fails, it fails, so be it. But I think the payoff could be huge because this model just looks fantastic, and I really want to have a go at it. Next up, we have the Knights of Arnor. So these models, it looks like he's used the Minas Tirith Knight Horses, which is absolutely fine. You'd use those. And essentially, Knights of Minas Tirith, but with added capes, with helmets from the Warriors of Arnor, with the breastplate shaven down to be basically a flat one instead of having the white tree on it, to have the shields from the Warriors of Arnor, and a banner from the Warriors of Arnor, some spears and things. So, and some swords and some of them. So for these ones, most of it's reasonably straightforward. I'll press mold the faces for the, the Warriors of Arnor, so get the helmets done. I know some people don't like those helmets, some people do, but I think it's really iconic for them, so I'll go for that. Press mold the shield, because the shield's got, once again, the iconic design with the, the diamond, with the, the wreath around it, and then the stars. And then the swords and weapons shouldn't be too hard. Pull them off the Knights of Minas Tirith pull them off something else. I've got a lot of the old metal Knights of Minas Tirith that you could use for lances, swords. You can go with Warriors of Minas Tirith. That's not a problem. I think the biggest issue is going to be the cape. Now, once again with capes, they've got they've got them in these conversion pictures with a lot of movement there, so they're flowing quite behind. So it looks like it's possibly use something like the Sons of Aeol or something that already has a flowing cape. So one option is to actually mold a cape from an already flowing horse model and use that as a basis. The other option is similar to the Sour and the Necromancer technique I talked about before, where you make a flat sheet of green stuff and then push it into place when it's almost dried. Either way, that's good. The third option would be to grab the, the capes from the Knights of Rindel set as well, which are quite decent for conversions. So that's that's another option. But I would want to play around with that because I think it looks fantastic, these Knights of Arnor. The banner itself, once again, mold the banner or use it, the actual standard bearer from Arnor but I think that's actually pretty hard to find. So you might need to put a proxy in there, maybe a, a Numenorian banner or a Gondor banner or a Dol Amroth banner, and then change it up. Following on that, there is the Fornos Citadel Guard. So this is a similar idea to the normal Citadel Guard, with except that it's basically based on the Warriors of Arnor again. So you've got the same helmets from the Warriors of Arnor, same technique, press mold those helmets. Looks like we'll have to make a lot of them. We've removed the bottom part of the, the mail from the the actual warrior, so the, the little skirt, dress thing, whatever it is, I'm not sure what it's called, is just the cloth, it's not got the armor on it, and that's pretty easy to do, you basically whittle it away, it's a bit of work on the metal models, but it's not too difficult, and it's super easy to green stuff any mistake, so if you take off too much, you just take it away, something like a dremel or a rotary tool is good for this, if you can just grind it out, 
Uh, don't take off too much, though. That's a bit of a danger. So that stays the same. Once again, the breastplate's been cleaned up to be a flat one, and not a lot else has changed on these ones. They're pretty simple in terms of their their overall design, but they look very different. I believe that the bottom where the um, the actual mail was, they've sculpted up some chain mail as well, which is, once again, if you're going to do some sculpting, that's one that's reasonably easy to start with because it's a little bit forgiving, the technique. So have that one looks like a decent one to have a shot at as well. Then we've got another set now. These are the Kingsguard from Arnor. So they've got Avendui, they've got Melbeth, and then they've got a bunch of uh, what he's termed Kingsguard. So these look like they're based on the Fountain Court Guard models. So it's very obvious that with the spears at the bottom. So Fountain Court Guard models with, once again, the same techniques done to the Citadel Guard. Some of the armor removed, the breastplate filed down, the helmets put to Warriors of Arnor, uh, swords on some models, spears on other models. In some, a variety of nice poses, although you can tell with the Photoshop that it's used the one pose for the the Fountain Court Guard, so that's a little bit limited. I'd consider doing maybe three of these or four of these, just so the variety isn't isn't so obvious that there's a whole bunch, but it looks pretty good. I think it looks like a Halberd banner as well from the the Halberd model that, that's really rare to find now, The but it's got the Arnold symbol on it. So once again, you could proxy a banner in for almost anything there, but look good looking, good looking set. And I think they'll look come up really well. Then we move on to a different race, the Orcs of Mordor. And I'm really excited about these because I've been working on Orcs quite a lot, as you've probably guessed. Some of them are reasonably straightforward. They've taken certain parts of the Orcs and, and basically grouped them together in similar types. So you've got a few bits from Moran and Orcs. You've got a lot of the same helmet types and, and things added to them. So once again, you press molds of helmets, some with hoods. So I think that's from a Shaman. The bowman. It looks like they've got uh, more armor on the uh, on the shoulders, so maybe the that comes from somewhere else, or maybe it's sculpted for some of them. But it's just adds some ideas for variety, and variety for the orcs is always a good thing. The banner itself looks really good. It's a classic orc banner, but it's been extended out, so the the top part is supporting it's a lot longer, and the banner pole's a bit longer as well. And the models uh, looks like it's based on one of those plastic orcs holding it out, so that could be a good one. I'd want to get a hold of a fine cast version of that instead of the metal one because I think it'd be a bit top heavy. I've already done the similar thing once in my Hunter Orcs and the banner doesn't quite hold. But this is a lot of straightforward conversions. Looks like they've used parts from some of the Orcs, moved them around and, and should be simple to get a similar result. Probably not exactly the same, but it's a good start point. And I like that they're all getting similar types of armor. So they sort of match together a little bit. And then we come back to Arnor, and we've got the Arnor Shadow Warriors. Now, these ones look like they're going to be hard to do. They they look, once again, like they're based on the Fountain Court Guard, but they've got almost all the Fountain Court Guard trimmings removed from it, so it's almost a skeleton outline that's left there. Uh, some of them have two swords. Some of them have bows. It looks like they have heads from the ranges of Gondor Sprue. So some of them have the hoods on the heads. Some of them have the mask on there and they look like they're assassins um, i haven't played the game but it looks like from the artwork from assassin's creed and and they look fantastic i think there'll be a bit of work to make these and i think you might want to come up with a clever way of doing that it might be based on different models because fountain court guard would be nice but the only thing really that's left for the fountain court guard is the shoulder pads so i would actually consider maybe even molding up just the shoulder pads and then taking them on some maybe some something a bit abstract like some warriors of rohan or maybe some uh 
ranges of, of Gondor or something like that, just to, to give a bit of variety there. But they look really good, and, and I like the color scheme. I like the models. Very clever. The next ones are based on the Oskilith veterans, but these ones are called Amonsul veterans. So they've got the shields from the Arnold models, again, the press molds. They've got heads from a variety of different places, and I'm just going to zoom in a bit and see if I can work out where some of the heads are from. I'm not entirely sure. It looks looks like it's got some influences from some of the, the ranges of the north, maybe from a trimmed-down Alindil helmet. Yeah, one of them does look like a Alindil there with the, the double-handed sword, so it's probably modified that. We've got some bare heads in there. Once again, make your helmet and then press molding. It's probably the way to go. They're using all the old metal Oskilia veterans, which I don't think is absolutely necessary. I think just making these out of Warriors and Minas Tirith and then like, cutting off the bottom part of the, the plate, which they've done on all of them, uh, getting rid of the, the white tree on it would be pretty simple conversion. So I think these ones are actually would be good to have a go at, and they look so different that there's they'll be quite rewarding. So another nice set, another nice inspiration, I think. And this one I think is quite achievable. Some more Orcs of Mordor. Similar ideas to the ones before with just different parts being used, all from the Orc range, and, and they look good as well. So just give me some imagination there. I like the use of the odd Moran and Orc helmet. I think that's something I haven't done yet, and I'm definitely going to do, make some molds of some of them. Uh, there's the one with the, the Rhino helmet essentially being used for one of them. And so lots of other variety there, and those Orcs are so easy to get that it's good to convert them up. And then I've got a picture of this one. It's called the Mortal Black Legion. Now this one's got, looks like, it's got the the chest plate from one specific orc. There's an orc, I think it's it's either one from the Siege Crew, or it's one with a two-handed axe, or, or both maybe. It's quite a big uh, breastplate. So they've got that on all the models, so you'll probably want to convert that up. They've got a variety of helmets. A lot of them are from either the Bowman or from the ones from the, um, the Golgoth Beast. You've got orcs with two swords, so a little bit of conversion there. They get swords in both hands. You've got archers, which which look quite good. And the bow... What's the bow? Oh, the bow's the Urukai scout bow. That's why it looks different. So you've got a bit of change there. Urukai scout bow parts. The the legs look like they're from the orcs, but I could be wrong there. You've got Moran and orc shields and some spears. I don't know where the spears are from. I'm not sure about that. But they could be from the Moranans. They could be just a, a, a made-up one. But once again, a nice-looking elite orc force. And they're not too over the top. They're not much bigger than the others. So there's some good conversions there. And then we've got some character models as well, which look quite impressive. So we've got a banner bearer based on it. We've got a couple drummers. It uh, looks like using the drum. So good excuse to, to mold up that drum and get some different drummers in there. A shaman, which looks kind of good. I actually think the shaman's... Looks like the model that they use is not from the range. It looks like it might be from a, a goblin range from Warhammer. So that one's basically a bit of a green stuff work and put a nice cloak on it. But I think I think once you've gone into the conversion, it looks really good. So nice, nice looking orcs. Another one is the, the Morgul Regiment. So these ones have all hoods on them. And they've also got shoulder pads consistently across the range. And then Urukai breastplates. So plastic Urukai breastplates, which is something I hadn't thought of before. Looks quite good. Lots of spears. Um, they've used the same weapon types on all of them, which actually looks really good. Normally, my orcs in particular have a chaotic amount of weapons, so these ones have the same. They've also got a helmet they're using that looks a bit like an assassin's helmet. I think it's from the Moranan uh, orc standard bearer, which is across most of the range, so that's another thing you'd have to press mold. But looks really good. Same thing, I think the shamans are from the night goblins just blown up, so they would have to be converted on their own. But a good-looking set as well. I've said that. I sound very repetitive at the moment, I think, but I'm just a little bit excited about it. So 
bear with me on that. I'm sorry about that. If if this is not making much sense, please be following the pictures along. Go on the page, have a look at them while we're doing this. Now, the next one is probably what I think the first maybe miss of the the lot of them. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of this. They've got Morgul trolls, so they've got troll drummers, and they've got the troll plastic troll chieftain model essentially. Well, without a shield, a sword in the hand, which looks good. I like the sword. But they've blown up that orc helmet that I talked about before, the Moranan orc helmet. And I don't know. I just, I think you could do something really cool with it. But at the moment, it doesn't quite sync with me for some reason. So I don't particularly like that. Maybe it's just the proportions of it. It's a bit too long. I think you could probably play around with it. But yeah, Assassin Trolls, maybe, maybe not. I'm not so sure about that. Now we move on to something a little bit different with the Warg Riders. So they've got what's called Mortal Warg Riders. Now... I've been wanting to do Wag Riders that are specifically Mortal rather than Isengard, and I think I'm going to use this as the basis because it's it's got the standard Wags and they've used the plastic Wag there. I'm not a massive fan of the plastic Wag, so I might actually put some straps on the things. But they've essentially used Orc Warriors on it as much as possible, bits from around the range and lots of change-ups, and it looks really solid. It looks really good. Uh, they've got, looks like a Sharky model on a Wag Chieftain, which looks really cool with a different head and a banner bearer and... Lots of guys with with spears. Instead of the throwing weapons, a typical one. They've actually got orc spears, so that looks good. And there's actually little spikes on them. I'm not sure where these are from. Maybe from the hunter orc sprue. Maybe you just make them with a little bit of wire and sculpt them in there. But they actually look really good. They've got little bits of, like, spikes or bone or something coming out of them and shoulders and helmets and makes them look really solid and really breaks up the silhouette. So, good set. Looks really good for those wag riders. And then we continue with some more of them which these ones have hoods is the main difference. So we've got the hooded set again. Hoods are pretty easy to make. You can make it with green stuff or you can mold something. And they look great as well. So some really nice idea for some wag riders from Mordor. Now he's also done the Black Numenorean Warriors in different poses. These models are not my favorite in the range. They're very limited in pose and they're very... Well, I, I've talked about the, the aesthetic before that I don't particularly like. But what they've done is taken the... There's, I think, three helmet types, or maybe four. I think it's three. And they've grouped them all together in one one unit and had the different poses there, which actually works reasonably well. So still not fantastic models, but getting the, the helmets together in a group works pretty well. I think one of the helmets has been modified slightly, or maybe two of them have been modified slightly, but they're pretty standard. They, they've got spears on some of them, which looks really good. So that that's a good addition. But overall, not too much the same, except when we get to the Black Guard, so the Black Numenorean Blackguard, these ones, there's some with crossbows, which I'm not sure where the crossbows are from. Maybe they're from a Warhammer model. Maybe they're from the Corsairs. But there's some with crossbows, which look pretty good. There's some with two-handed sword, which I think are from the Mouth of Sauron. And once again, they look good as well. And then you've got a modified one that looks like it's got a Witch King-esque helmet on it. I'm not entirely sure the pieces used for that or what it's been copied from. But these ones actually look really good. I do quite like these ones. So if I'm going to do them, I'll probably grab those ones. And then they've got some mounted versions as well of them, which unfortunately are all in the mouth of Sauron horse, so I'd use the, the plastic horse for that. But they look decent as well. And then, I'm not sure about these ones, there's the Heramore's Guard of the Black Temple. These ones have a helmet that look like a bigger Akai helmet. I'm not sure where they're from, and it looks like they don't have eye holes, so they're, they're kind of cool. I, I do like them. They've got rid of the armor on the front. They've given the cloaks all around, so they're more like ring wraiths. So it probably is based on Ringwraith models with Black Numenorean parts. And then they've got some of these dog things, which I think are from Warhammer as well, which 
really look quite disgusting. They're like a, a shaved wag, essentially, and on chains. So that that looks pretty good as well. So, yeah, I think basing them on the ring rafe with then they've got think these spears with the, the sickle edges, and, yeah, it looks good. Black Numenor trolls have basically the Numenorean helmets on top of the trolls and some extra armor changes, and once again, I'm not a huge fan of this, this unit. I think, one, because they're all in the same pose in the, in the picture, but I, I don't know. The troll's just not working for me so much. Maybe, maybe it would take a bit of work. It's a good idea anyway. Then we have back to orcs, and this is called the Uden Regiment. So you've got more ideas for shamans and hornblowers and things, which are really good. There's more ideas for poses and different helmets, which are, once again, look fantastic. And I think these ones are based on the the legs of the Mordor... Sorry, Moranon or Captain, maybe? Or Mordor or Captain. It's got quite a bit of chain mail at the feet. What I do like in this lot is that there's a couple models based on Grishnak. And I definitely want to do this conversion because it looks fantastic. Give him a helmet, give him a shield. And he's quite he, he's quite a different orc because his arm is, almost looks like bear fur. And that looks great. So I might get my hands on a few extra Grishnaks and convert them up and, and base on that because that looks really good. And then they've got equivalent Wag Riders as well. And these ones are interesting because they've taken the heads of the old Wag Riders and put it on the, the bodies of the Falwags, and then had the, the orc, quite elaborate orc conversion riders on them, and that looks looks quite decent. I'm still not sure about some of the old heads, but some of them I think look pretty good. It's a good way of doing it, and I do like the action pose of the Falwags, so probably costing a bit to do that set, but that's that's a nice change for Wag riders as well, and quite inspiring. And now the last one, the Beast of Udon, which got my attention quite a bit, these ones are very much a concept because the the model that they've based on is a Rhinox cavalry model from Forgeworld, from Warhammer Fantasy, and they've blown it up to be about the size of a Golgoroth beast. And it's got the Golgoroth beast horn on it instead of their horns, and they've got carriages that look like based on their Golgoroth beast and filled up with the orcs from the previous one. So it looks quite good. But the one that got my attention is an extended one with a catapult. Now, I really do want to put some artillery on one of my beasts. I think that would be look look really good. It'd be fun to do. I don't know how practical it is, but should be great for scenarios and some fun. So I think I'm going to end up doing it based on a Mumak. So if I can do it now, I, I'm not sure how good this is going to be, and I'm going to have to check the dimensions. But what I would love to do is take the Mumak model, make the howder look like the Golgoroth Beast's howder, so, so quite different there, and then sculpt it to so get rid of all the elephant features and turn it into a Golgoth Beast features and then mount a great big catapult on its back. So that could look fantastic. I think then I could also get a Golgoth Beast and put, say, a Siege Bow on it as well and some really good options there. And those have got my my mind really moving because I think given the Orcs, essentially a Mumak troop type could be really good, especially for playing battles in, say, the, the Second Age where you've got the Last Alliance going. I think it'll be really great to break up the troop types and have some orcs in some carriers. So thank you so much, Jacek, for all these fantastic conversion ideas, and I really can't wait to put some together. They're, they're fantastic ideas, and and it's really great to see this happening. So I can't wait to see people start actually attempting them. It's going to be really wondrous.
Welcome to this month's Entmoot. Today we have David asking us some fantastic questions from our listeners. Good evening or morning all. The questions are as follows. Okay, you Question don't have to talk one, that can slow. Can we talk faster? Yes, yeah, you can. You just have to do the intro slow. Okay. So, Caleb is asking, what have been your most outrageous moments in a game? My most outrageous moments? There has been many, and mostly it's outrageous kills that my opponents have got against me. So, my favorite one was we played a Heroes and Monsters tournament. We actually did this twice, actually. One was a Heroes and Monsters tournament um, in Melbourne. One was in Canberra, and I had a Witch King in them. And I, I had taken the Ring Ramp on Falbeast, the Witch King, and this is a fantastic model. And two times, I had a single Hasharan pass the courage test to charge my witch king, run up to the witch king, pick up a throwing weapon, aim it at the witch king, get the distance to reach the top of the witch king, hit the witch king, and promptly fail all my fate and not have enough might to be able to save it. So twice I've had an Asharan throwing weapon my witch king to death, and I call that absolutely outrageous, ridiculous, and funny. Okay, I'm trying to think of an outrageous moment that I haven't already mentioned on a previous episode. Listen to the Denethor episode for my Denethor stories and the Moomark episode for the Moomark stories. So, other than those... Ooh, let's Give think. me a best of Sharon moment. Come on, you've got one as well. My best of Sharon moment? I don't know. My Sharon has killed a great many things throughout the years, but there is one thing that he could not kill. There was a High Elf Standard Bearer, and he had that Fight 6 upgrade. And the Hasharan is like, I have you trapped in a corner. Prepare to die. The Hasharan charges. The Hasharan fails to win the fight. The Hasharan charges. Hasharan fails to win the fight. The Haradrim king goes, what is this delay? And he comes over and the two of them fight this high elf banner bearer with his fight six. And they fail to win the fight. In the end, they just gave up and went off and went and killed Gilgalad, leaving this one high elf banner bearer there because they just couldn't kill him. They're like, no, we'll go fight the high king. We can at least defeat him. And I think the most outrageous moment in our gaming club was when we're playing one of the scenarios where, you know, the Mulmec had to run through the Harrod Road and there's Faramir with Frodo, Sam and Gollum. Ah, uh, yes. And the Mulmec was almost off, ready to go. And Murray's Sam picked up a, picked up a rock, lobbed it, the, the Mulmec, took, his, took a wound off, forced the Mulmec to stampede and crashed the Mulmec off a single throw stone. It was amazing. Uh, yes. uh, my outrageous Mulmec story that I haven't already told is it was a practice game for something or other, but I was surrounded. There was elven knights in a f- solid ring around my Moomark that ridden down all my ground forces. The Moomark was on one wound. Elrond was in combat going, you're going down this turn. My commander's like, men, been a pleasure serving with you. We've got one last shot. They fire into combat with the elves. They kill their own Moomark. None of them survive the fall damage. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, the second question is, in fact, three questions. And they're coming from Mason. Question one. If you could be any creature of Middle-earth, what would you be? Any creature? Mm. Well, I think, having read through these questions beforehand, we probably should bar the creature that we're going to use our favourite character, isn't there? Is no, there a- it's favourite creature favorite location favorite age of the world okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna get in before you i'm gonna be an elf and i'm gonna be a specifically calibrimbor because 
I think making magic rings is going to be fantastic fun and a good way to spend time in my hobby room. Yes, crafting up some rings of power. Yeah, so I'm going to go go elf for that, and I think that's the obvious choice. What's yours, David? Ah, uh, any creature. If we're going elf, it has to be Earendil, as Gladriel says, Arendil. He is the elf who sailed into you know the west of west on his boat and was rewarded by being given a magical boat made of mithril and elven glass, which flies for you yeah, know good fl- measure. Flying is, spaceship's pretty good. And he, he fought dragons against it. Oh, dragons. So, yes. So, elf on a flying boat doing aerial battle against dragons. That's a scenario okay, I Okay, I'm really changing my see. creature. I'm going to dragon. I'm going to fight you on your flying boat. Okay, so I'm cool. going to go dragons. Okay, so the next part of that question, anywhere in Middle-earth to live, where would it be? Oh, anywhere in Middle-earth. That's a tricky one. I reckon I would go for Tharendal's Halls because of the the nice refreshments available and plentiful and mm-hmm. and I reckon there'll be some seriously good partying with those elves. So mm-hmm. that's where I'm going for. Well, the obvious choice is of course the Shire because it's all picturesque, but you've got to remember the ceilings are really low. So I think that rules the Shire out. Um Breeze a bit dingy. You don't, say, want to, you don't want to be a ranger and just wander no, around no, the no, wilds, do you? Yeah, then you don't really get anywhere to live. Let's just go Gondor. Good, solid, solid architecture. You know, roof over your head. You're such an engineer. Just solid. That's what you want. Yeah. Nothing fans. You're not like Lothlorien living in the trees or... No, no, no. You want some solid engineering under you. Rivendell and that sort of secret last homely house. There's so many good places. And finally, which age of the world? We'd pick one. Which age? So we've got four choices, do we? Yeah. I well, you could four. say the elder days before they actually came up. No, with I'm ages. not saying that. I'm saying Middle Earth. So yeah. I think first is the minimum. I'm going to... Ooh. That's a tricky first one. First age, you're fighting the ultimate evil. Second and third ages, you're fighting Sauron. Fourth third age, age men sort of, are popping up everywhere and yeah. they're, they're sort of taking over and the elves are declining. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Fourth age is the golden era of peace and prosperity. Nah, and stuff like that's boring. Yeah. I'm going to go... Really happens. I think the third age, and I think I'm going to go War of the Ring time. I think I think being part of that and overcoming Sauron for that time would be fantastic. So I'm going to go third age War of the Ring. I'd have to say second age, because you still have a lot more of the magic items kicking around, like Calabrimbor's smithing out rings of power, there's, there's swords of magic all over the place. But you, you're not trying to fight the ultimate evil, so all of your magic actually does something. Second age is the worst choice. It's the middle ground. It's when you've got the power and the sorcery and your bad guys are actually weak enough that you can fight them. Yeah, I think the order goes War of the Ring, First Age, Fourth Age, Second Age. I think you're wrong there, David. Be that as it may. So, we have one question left coming in from Matthew. With such an extensive collection, you must have some ingenious ideas of how to store and transport your miniatures. Care to share? So I definitely have some ingenious this, ideas, this but I do not to be, care to share. No, I'll this, share them. This appears to be a yes or no question. So, oh, okay, yes. <laughs> yeah, I also would care to share. Yeah. Oh, I've, wouldn't. Either I way. use plastic drawers that are pretty cheap. I get them from from Bunnings, local hardware store. I've mentioned Bunnings before, but mm-hmm. your local hardware store will probably sell them. Basically, they get a pallet of them in and just sell that stock, and then they get a new type. So I've got lots of different ones. They're a plastic drawer, not the most solid thing in the world, but I then get some sheet metal that's that's able to take magnets so i always test out the magnets first because some of them can't and then i cut that to shape and put it in the bottom glue it down with some two-part epoxy and then tape it up so it doesn't damage my models 
and I basically put magnets in the bottom of all my models. So I have, I have probably about, uh, as a rough guess, 40 drawers or something worth of models that are against my wall. And then if I'm transporting them, I can just take out the drawer, put the models I need in it, and take that, put that in my special Lord of the Rings storage compartment in the car underneath the seat that's top secret, and take that to the gaming club or if I want to go on a tournament or something like that. Uh, I do have the, the foam cases as well but I rarely use them unless I'm flying interstate because I don't like them because they tend to eat the paint off my models and they're just they're unnecessary when I've got the magnetized. Now, the magnets, if you're shaking them, the, the models will fall off, but I'm not doing that, so that's all good. Mm-hmm. Transporting models, I also use the magnetized to a tray method. I think I stole it off Jeremy, so it, it works fairly well. For storage at home, because I don't have all that many trays, uh, we have a whole bunch of pigeonholes, we have a whole bunch of random shelves and stacks of things, and we pretty much find any flat metal object that magnets will stick to, and we stuff them in pigeonholes and pack them to the roof and generally improvise. Yeah, I like the flat storage. I think we've got such mm-hmm. yeah, big collections that putting them in the mm-hmm. the foam is, is not yes. the way to go for all of them. You can do it for transport, mm-hmm. but I like the trays. Mm-hmm. That's definitely the way to go. Also, find a lot of the bows and things. If they're dramatically posed, you end up having to cut into your foam, and yeah, and of, then you, you only, only get half the storage. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And we appear to be out of questions for tonight. Some really quality questions. I like those questions. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And we'll see you next time in the Entmoot. Till then. Hurry up and give us your quick thoughts. Today on Quick Thoughts, it's just me, Jeremy. So I'm going to have a quick minute to talk about a topic that has popped up a little bit recently. I'm going to go one side of the argument each. So one minute for and one minute against. And this is sharing your your ideas, sharing your your work with the community. So for and against. First of all, I'm going to go against, and then I'm going to go for. My time starts now. There is nothing more annoying than when you go and you put all the hard work, you come up with this fantastic idea for a model, you prepare it for the next tournament or the next event, you really want to get a leg up in the best army, you share your idea, and then someone else does it better than you. How frustrating is that? They go, they take your idea, they work it better than you, and then they share it with the community as well. What a terrible idea. And it ruins your army. It ruins your effect. You've gone, you put all that effort to it, you put all that thought in it, you come up with something amazing, something different. You've got something unique, and they have the nerve to steal your idea, put it out there. Now, the other thing that annoys me is when you go to a tournament and you look and someone else has got a model and you look at that model and say, that's my model. I went to Sydney and Darius had a dwarf that looked exactly like mine. It was Dane. I thought it was mine, but it wasn't mine because he saw a photo of mine. Oh, it's so frustrating. And that's time up. Now for...
we don't get a lot of inspiration in our community from the games company that makes it. We have wonderful books, we have wonderful movies, and we have the community. We need to share our work to keep us interested, to put it up there, to put it out there. There's been some fantastic examples in this episode itself. We've had the 50,000 Orcs examples of the dioramas, wonderful stuff. We've had the conversion ideas, which were fantastic. We've had Adam with the unreleased miniatures making models for us. These are all wonderful things that wouldn't happen if people didn't share the community. So who cares about this idea of, of owning something? Basically, all that matters is really the mates you play with. So if all of you have the same thing, so what? Just use one at a time. Who cares about that? Who cares about the trivial idea about that try to be better than someone else in there? This community will go on for a long time if we share and we help each other out, and that's the way we should be doing it. I'm up as well. Thank you both, Jeremy's, and that's all for this episode. Remember, traps win games. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon Podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on the Green Dragon Podcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener, until we meet again.